Hello and welcome to another episode of MTG Rants. I am Ross Miriam. Tannen is out of uh, town and unable to record this week because of his obligations commentating for Flesh and Blood. So I will be leading today's show with special guest Todd Anderson. How are you doing, Todd? I'm doing pretty great. How are you doing, Ross? I'm doing okay. We got a, we're recording this on a on a weekend, a little bit late in the week because we were um, let's say recovering from the Invitational last weekend? Well, all I know is my wife Callie was asleep on the couch for two days and still called for half a day on Thursday. So uh, it was rough. It was a lot of hours in a row for the weekend. So, Yeah, I don't think any of us, uh, you know, it's been so long since we had done a, a tournament, you know, of any kind, much less a tournament of that magnitude uh, that, yeah, it definitely took a lot out of us here in Roanoke, but was certainly a, an excellent weekend. Uh, especially you know, with Corey taking it down, uh, the entire team BCW did really well, which was sweet. Um, so and, and you know and just getting honestly, to see everybody. The, the boomers, man, it was uh, it was boomer weekend. If I ever yeah. seen one, that's that's really the I think the best part of it for for all of us is that first tournament back. You know, we're all a little bit worried that maybe everything has just passed us by and it's just going to be the zoomers crushing us. And now. Turns out the boomers still got it when it comes to playing Paper Magic. We put all the, the young kids in their place and, uh, you know, m- made sure they knew who, who still runs these streets. Yeah, okay. Where, what place did you get? 28th. <laughs> okay. No. You're but like, I also, you're like, we run these streets. I got 28th. I lost the last <laughs> two rounds in absurd fashion, okay? okay? Okay, okay. My opponents ran so well, it is unbelievable so would you say that your opponents ran these streets <laughs> <laughs> i and can't that, talk i mean you know i got top 64 i got clapped in standard so yeah i got clapped in modern so that, that's the history of my invitationals by the way so i always have one good deck and one bad deck <laughs> well that's honestly that's the that's the big litmus test or whatever because like the two deck format like most people are really solid on one format but being solid in two is extremely difficult yeah it's it's you know it's so easy to flip a coin and come up heads when you ask me to cut, hit heads twice it's just so hard. <laughs> well, you know it doesn't hurt that you picked a what I would I would say is the least playable modern deck I've ever seen. So. <laughs> okay, that's definitely not true. I've okay, played many wait, worse modern decks. Question: Were you playing the version? So Ross was playing the like faithful mending reanimator deck, but I have a question: Were you playing the version that still had counterspell in it? No. Okay, because I saw some versions that were playing a counterspell in their reanimator deck, and I thought, huh, that's not good. Yeah, the the, the original <laughs> versions of that deck played Thoughtseize Counterspell. I was playing Aspiring Spikes version that had Ephemerate, Grief, and Solitude. Were you playing the Moldrifter, or did you cut them like a coward? Hmm. I was playing two Moldrifters main. Coward. And I had, a, I had a Teferi in the sideboard. You know how good Divination is? Which is sort of my third Moldrifter. When you're playing pitch cards, Divination is the nuts. It's really not. I mean, how the, many? Games the entire deck play? was just not good. How many games like, did you play? Hmm. A, a number. Yeah. <laughs> Some small number, and then you just cut two bolt drifters. No, the deck only had three. I only cut one, and I added a Teferi to the sideboard to compensate in matchups where I really wanted card advantage. Oh, I assume there were four Teferis in the main deck. That's weird. Oh, well, I mean, big Teferi. There's four small Teferis. Oh, that's a lot. Okay, whatever. All right, so uh, can I rant on something? Sure, that's what the show is. 
Oh, I thought it was the Pioneer cast. Pioneer, the no, Pioneer no, podcast. No, we, we rebranded last year, Todd. Oh, that's right. I think I actually came up with this name when me and Tana were playing Warzone together. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, that's why. No, I, I actually do I, think you were the one who came up with the name. So. No, I, that, I mean, I was kidding on the, is this still called? No. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. So we have a, a new set, right? In, it's uh, Innistrad Crimson Val. Uh, and if you're thinking, well, didn't we just have an Innistrad set that came out like one month ago? You would be correct. That is true. Uh, for some reason, they have like back-to-back Innistrad sets within like two, less than two months between each other. And I'm just like, you know, I'm just getting used to the ones that just came out, you know. And now there's literally a whole new set released already after one week of previews. And I, and that's what we're here to talk about, right? But it just seems really fast is all I'm saying. I mean... Yeah, of course it's fast. They did they Watsy did things the basically the exact same way for like 20 years. You know, there were some innovations in how they actually designed the sets and and more emphasis on world building and things like that, but from an economic side of things, they were releasing I guess for a while it was it was three and a half sets a year because they did the core set every other year. And then somebody figured out that they should be releasing just four sets a year. And they made up some bullshit reasons to release weird fourth sets in the off years of core sets. That's how we got Cold Snap. Oh, That's how we got um, the experiment with two two-set blocks with Lorwyn, Morning Tide, and then Shadow More Eventide. Those were just all excuses to release a fourth set in the years where they normally would only release three. And, like, you know, three, four years ago, somebody at Hasbro was just like, we should be releasing more sets, you know, or more cards and more products. So they've got all the supplementary shit. They've got 7,000 faces on every single card. So every card is actually like 12 cards. And now we're going to get probably 17 sets a year and preview season will never end. And you're required to have collections on Moto and Arena and in real life. And every card is actually secretly a commander card. And that's just how magic works in 2021, and it fucking sucks. I think it's pretty great. Mm. I'm just—I mm. don't know. It's all bad. Uh, like there, there's no way that because there's no way you can keep pushing product at this rate, and they're going to only increase the rate at which they release product, and uh, it, it's eventually just going to crumble because there's just too much shit out, and they don't care because the people that operate at the top of these major corporations just leave after every six months to a year. Oh, yeah, like that, two years or whatever everything is super short term really frustrating i agree like is chris cox even the president anymore anymore i, remember I have no made, idea i just made, like, know a how these things work. out of him becoming the president like a couple years back and like yeah. i just i've never heard any words from his mouth you know and that just doesn't seem right for a game that i like you know where you at you know, <laughs> and it's not at? necessarily like any individual person's fault. It's just how these things operate. Everything is a short-term profit, short-term profit. We don't give a shit about the long-term because I won't be here then. That'll be someone else's job to fix. Well, that's <laughs> and, also how they deal with climate change. I don't know if you've been... Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, everything sucks, and we're here to talk about magic, so maybe it won't suck for the next hour and a half. Look, okay, as far, for, we're going to do a lot of ranting and a lot of moaning and bitching, so if you like moaning and bitching and following along with that, that's great. I, we, we, <laughs> love, we love you being here, but I do want to say one very nice thing about yeah. magic and Wizards of the Coast, okay? Um, infinite preview season makes making content pretty easy. 
Um, yeah, no, that, that is, that is true. That aspect of my job is certainly easier. Um, I like, you know, during COVID specifically when there just like, weren't a lot of tournaments to attend or any other than like some online stuff, uh, just like having a new set come out every two months, just like gave me the ability to spend most of my time just building new decks and trying out different things in different formats and stuff. And that was pretty fine. And uh, you know, for versus live in particular, you know, we're, um, um, we're, we always sort of struggle right towards the end of a, of a set's life cycle, uh, right before previous season for the next one. So under the old scheme of releasing four sets a year, there is usually about a month before previous season for the next set started where every format was kind of stale. There wasn't a whole lot going on. And without tournaments to drive innovation at least a little bit towards the end of, of that cycle, it, it you know we had to get kind of creative with how we would do the show. And now we basically just have so much previous season over the course of uh, a single year, and then the, you know more previous seasons also means more you know set release and that three week or so period after a set's release where things are really interesting, especially in standard. Um, at least now that Throne of Eldrain is gone and actual new cards can see play, uh, but. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it's not all bad, but uh, you know, suffice it to say that my long-term outlook has uh, dimmed. My long-term outlook has been dimmed for like a decade, though. So, <laughs> you know, every moment it's just like, oh, I wish they would do this one thing. Maybe they'll do that before I'm fifty. And like, I'm not, I'm not forty yet, but I'm almost at forty. And then I'm thinking back, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure that I wanted this to happen. You know. X number of decades ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, is that now all that we're... life is? Is that just what life is? Just like waiting? That's what then... life is under class society. And then nothing ever changes, you know? Is mm. that just. Yeah, that's what the entire two party system is set up to do to make sure things never change. At least that, or at least to make sure they oscillate within a narrow bound of possibilities. All right. So, how does. Uh, another country right that's not the united states um like how do their political things not devolve into two-party states i feel like the two-party system is like the de facto unchecked regulation type shit just devolves into that without any sort of checks uh no it's the voting system that does that in the united states it's a it's called first past the post where uh, as soon as you get you know um the plurality of, of the votes in a given election, you win and the other votes essentially don't count. Um, and and the, because of the all or nothing nature of those kinds of elections, you are naturally incentivized to create electoral coalitions. And, and uh, you know, if even if like, you know, that's what the Democrats say, like, don't you don't want to split the vote. And that's why they complain about anybody running to their left. Um because if you split the vote, then you're going to throw the election towards the other person, like what happened in, in 1912 with the Bull Moose Party and Teddy Roosevelt, who split the Republican vote and let Woodrow Wilson win. Um, so that kind of shit be, just becomes good electoral strategy. Now, in a lot of European countries, they have, um, especially for, for election to uh, legislative um, bodies, they have proportional representation. So based on the number of votes that the, the party gets... Uh, you know, if they get X percent, then they get X percent of the seats in the legislature. 
And so that creates incentive for a a, a multi-party system. And then within the, the, the uh, because it's a parliamentary system. And so then the, the, the there create, there forms a coalition among different parties within lo- the legislature to uh, effectively govern. And that, and that's how they determine the, like the prime minister in the UK or things like that. They're not, they're not really directly elected. It's just a result of the coalition in the um, other parts of the government. So that there are some unique aspects to how our shitty government works that creates even more shitty aspects of it. Yeah. I feel like maybe we should do some overhauling. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, you, you, you might be surprised to learn that I'm a fan of that, Todd. Oh. <laughs> okay, before I get myself into <laughs> I'm sorry, deeper I'm... water than I already am, I was maybe just we should... you on purpose. So. Yeah, no worries. Uh, we should uh, probably talk a little bit about Magic. We have the entire set of Innistrad Crimson Vow. One of the other consequences of them releasing 7,000 sets every year is that preview season isn't like three weeks long like it used to be. Remember, uh, you know, it used to be every day you got like four cards and you just, when we were doing verses, we just kind of hoped the four cards were good. And if they weren't, we just had to build really bad decks with really bad cards in them. <laughs> now we at least get, you know, 30 cards a day and, uh, you know, a few of them are going to be good every time. So, or at least they're going to look good, even if they don't end up being good. Um, so we, we got the entire set yesterday. As I said, we're, we're recording this on a Saturday, um, which means we can really talk about anything you want. Um Tan and I are going to be doing our top eight next week, so we're not going to do any sort of overarching what do we think the best card in the set is kind of stuff. I think we're just going to focus on on individual cards. Um, so are there any cards that have really stood out to you thus far, Todd? Uh, so I did write an article uh, last week about Maniform Hellkite, uh, the new four-mana dragon that whenever you cast... I'll just read it. Uh, so it's two, two colorless and two red for a 4-4 four, four flyer. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, create an XX Red Dragon Illusion creature uh, with Flying in Haste, where X is the amount of mana spent to cast the spell. And then at the uh, beginning of the next step, you exile the token. So, 4 mana, 4-4. Four, four. Whenever you play a removal spell or a card draw spell or whatever, you create an XX where it equals to the mana spent, kind of like a uh, smoldering egg. And then that thing can attack, and then it goes away at EOT. So, it's kind of like every spell you cast, you deal damage to your opponent equal to the mana cost as long as they don't kill the token or so block i i have two rants about this card todd well you take your first rant and i'll respond and then you can take your second rant and then i'll respond hey my first one is why the fuck does it have to make a dragon illusion token there's so many weird tokens now like why do we have again like seven thousand different kinds of tokens? And I get like it goes away, so it should be an illusion. So I imagine that's like driven by flavor. But we live it, or we're like we're imagining this like ridiculous world where magic is real. Like why can't it just be a fucking dragon token and uh, have things be a little bit simpler here? Do we need to have all of the little fucking details right? Um, it would just make it easier. Now, obviously, they want to create as many different tokens as fucking possible. So now you got to, if you want to, if you're like me, like I actually like playing with the actual tokens, um, then you got to track down a million of these. It makes versus harder for us. Uh, you know, it's an XX, so it's kind of new anyway. So this isn't as egregious, but like the the three two red wolf token on the one drop, like what the fuck? Just just create like have some consistency somewhere. But they can't do that because that makes them less money. Um, 
Okay, I don't really have any qualms with Token. I mean, <laughs> yeah, my, my, so, my rants aren't actually about the card uh, itself. <laughs> so, like, I, I'm on your side for uh, one thing, right? Like, I think uh, Mascot Expedition or Exposi- Expedition, Mascot Exhibition. Okay, yeah. There it is. Uh, that one making three different tokens is like, that's like a get off my lawn moment. Yeah. Um, but for this one, they're all the same. You can also just use dice because they just disappear at the end of turn. You know, like I think uh, just like a dice with the the casting cost of the spell, you just put it into play and you either say attack or block, depending on if you're doing it for attacking or blocking, which specifically is why I think the card's great. Because if you're being aggressive, you can like kill your opponent's creature and then hit them for a few extra points of damage. Um, or if you need to be defensive, it kind of creates like this little uh, pocket of time where, you know, you get to kill something and block something and, and just like prevent an ass load of damage for a very, very small investment. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that where, you know, if you're untapped with this card, it's really difficult for your opponent to attack. It's kind of like shark typhoon in that way, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, obviously you're not going to, you're probably not going to make as big of things as shark typhoon does, but you, you know, if you're thinking about trying to go wide and you don't know really how many chump blockers they can make, uh, it could be hard. You're really you know worried about even things like consider just making a one one, but removal spell to kill one attacker and then block another one is tough. So really makes it hard for your opponent to manage any sort of racing scenario, uh, which is really nice because it, that happens a lot in, in in creature matchups, especially when you're playing a flyer. You know, yeah. flyers tend to generate more more racing situations. So the card that I paired with it in a couple of different builds that I thought was really cool, uh, it's a new Time Walk card called Alchemist's Gambits. One and two red mana, sorcery. Uh, take an extra turn after this one. During that turn, damage can't be prevented. At the beginning of that turn's end step, you lose the game, and then you exile Alchemist's Gambit. It also has cleave, and for seven mana, four, two blue, and a red, uh, you get to just take an extra turn, uh, and it... And then, like, you don't have the, at the beginning of the turns and step, you lose the game clause. So, in a pinch, if you're trying to kind of tempo kill your opponent, you can take a three-mana time walk uh, and, like, untap with your, um, uh, the Maniform Hellkite and then, like, create a token along the way. But, in, you know, as the game goes super long, you can spend seven mana and just kind of take an extra turn. So, it kind of feels like a weird uh, double roll. Of kind of combo killing your opponent at three mana, or just being like this other time walk effect that you can play for seven. Kind of yeah, like so now, now we've got the ability to be to play more like an aggressive deck, the ability to play a little bit more defensively, like a control deck, uh, and the ability to you know set up one big turn and, and play like a combo deck. And I definitely preach versatility as being very important in Magic in 2021. Yeah, I mean, you you saw this firsthand, right? Alchemist Gambit and on Versus Live last week against Corey. He went uh, what turn four, Galzeth, Prince Mari, turn five, uh, Goldstone Dragon attack, and then just casts his uh, Alchemist Gambit, and then he gets to untap with both of his dragons and attack again, and that, and then you just died. Yeah, because he had, he had turn three. Uh, what is the, what's the Wandering Mind? The three mana two one. Uh, and that actually, if you, if you do the math, that attacks for twenty. <laughs> so that three, four, five curve is, is pretty strong. The the unfortunate part about that game is I had made I think I, I was set to attack for thirty two on my next turn. I had sort of comboed off with Necro Duality on my turn five, and I was going to untap and play uh, a a Blade Stitch Scob and make two copies of it, and then copy everything I had made the, the or pump everything I'd made the previous turn. So I thought I was really well set up, and then he just sort of comboed me first. 
<laughs> yeah, that, that, this is a neat card. I think it, you know, it, it's different enough than Moonvale Regent to make the decision between playing them interesting. You know, one isn't just straight up better than the other. I think Moonvale Region is better for a more defensive deck. I'd just rather have the card advantage, even though Maniform Hellkite did, does give you some defensive capabilities. Uh, Maniform Hellkite definitely plays a little bit better being more aggressive, it seems like. At least that's my read between the two. Um, but they're different enough that I could see I could see both of them seeing play in the same deck. Like certain metagames you play one and certain metagames you play another uh, if your deck is sort of mid-rangey. And depending upon the exact posture you want to be taking, and that that I like quite a bit because it's been pretty clear over the last maybe five years that Watsi prints a lot of cards that sort of sit on top of each other, right. and oftentimes I brought that one up of, too in my article. <laughs> yeah, oftentimes one of them is just better than the the others, yeah. and it makes the other ones unplayable. And I don't think that's the case here. I think that those two cards that really uh, exist at a very similar power level. So uh, I'll give them some props on that. I was a big fan of Moonvale Regent uh, the first couple times I played it. You know, I, I kind of assumed it was just going to be a 4-mana four 4-4 four, four flyer that maybe drew some cards now and again. And that that is kind of what it ended up being. Uh, but it does have the second clause of whenever it dies, you, like, shoot something for X damage where X is the number of different colors of permanence you own. And, uh, like, it doesn't count your lands, but it does count, like, your uh, tokens from Mascot Exhibition. And so, like, you just randomly got to, like, kill an extra creature sometimes and things like that. It was really weird. Um, but it, you don't really draw cards with it that much because the way that it works is you kind of have to be empty-handed, kind of similar to Experimental Frenzy, to really get the, the value out of it because you kind of just have to chunk your hand every time. Um, so what ended up happening is it just was a four mana four, four flyer that sometimes had an ability, but most of the time didn't. And I think that mana form Hellkite is exceptionally better. And I, I don't really know how to describe it other than is it has no trouble, uh, casting spells because of the, uh, like divide by zero and, and all your spells just kind of replacing themselves. A lot of times you don't really run out of juice in this format too much. So I think Maniform Hellkite just is always going to be dealing a little extra damage or providing you with a little bit of extra defense. And in both those scenarios, that's just better than the, uh, the region. Um, yeah, I think you're a little bit underselling the, the potential card advantage from Moonvale region. And even if it's not card advantage is often just like giving you the opportunity to turn lands into spells because the lands are probably what's sitting in your hand. So, I mean, I've, I play like 20 matches with Moonvale. Like I, I get it. Like I know what it does. It's just like, it's, it just doesn't, you don't get empty handed as much as you would think. Yeah. Well, you, you kind of have, you got, you have to build with it in mind. This is, we went through the same thing with, um, uh, what's the, Card, the the card advantage card they used to play in in Martyr Pyromancer, Bedlam Reveler, right? When Bedlam Reveler was first printed, everybody just compared it to most kind of like Delve creatures or, or things like that, and, and put it into Izzet decks. But the problem was when you paired it with a, a pile of Cantrips, you just didn't empty your hand quickly enough, and so that the ability, uh, the ETB ability on Bedlam Reveler, ended up not being very effective. But oh, when you sure. paired it with Faithless Looting and Thoughtseize and removal spells, and then just you know emptied your hand, killing everything your opponent played, and then refueled with Bedlam Reveler, it looked great. Oh, so you know, uh, so um, Zach Allen was touting his like top two Mythic rank or whatever uh, with his like Grixis control deck for Standard. Yep. And, um, you know, he's like Duress, Sedgemore Witch, Smoldering Egg, 
that type of thing, right? Like he's trying to cast like a bunch of low to the ground interaction interactive spells instead of playing Hour's Epiphany. And I think that is the kind of deck where Moonvale Regent can shine because you have these low to the ground effects but very little actual card draw. And so like you actually can utilize the 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 wheel effect from the Moonvale Regent, but in a deck like is it dragons? Like it, it's way more important that you just have the uh you know the capability to play long anyway so relying on it is not really something i think you should do yeah for the man of form hellcat is much more of a blue card than moonvale regent is i yeah. think that's what we're getting at so yeah, i agree uh, yeah and that, that makes complete sense my, my other rant about this card is why have we changed the templating from mana value to the mana cast on the spell I, I would assume it's because that seems more intuitive, but it's not like they've gotten rid of referencing mana value on other cards. So instead, we just have both. And in you know, at my advanced age, I just have to play the guessing game of which ones are templated which way. I mean, just read the cards. There's literally two. There's Maniform Hellkite and Smoldering Egg, and then everything else is the old way. No, there's Memory Deluge that is oh, mana right, spent on right. it. I forgot about Deluge. Uh, yeah. And I, presumably there will be more of these coming in the future, so the problem will only get worse. Well, so and... the Deluge specifically was, like, trying to prevent you from cheating it, I guess. Um, like, if they just made it, you know, f- four mana, look at the top four, and then flashback seven, look at the top four, it would have been, like, a bit worse, I guess. But also this prevents it from being cloned and stuff, so I kind of hate that. So I I don't I don't really know what they're going for. They're I think they're just trying to limit the power of it a little bit and just do weird design space. Um, but I know specifically for Smoldering Egg, I don't think they wanted it to work with Treasure Cruise and Pioneer. I think they just like kept that in the back of their brain when they were making it. Like this should definitely not get flipped off of a dig through time. There is no way that went through anyone's head before that card got printed. You are giving them way too much credit. I bet I bet a lot of money. Are you, t- are you kidding? The, Why, I don't think I don't think that anyone in Watsi has played a game of Pioneer in the last two years. Right, but whenever they come up with a new card, you don't think that the people that they're hiring to do play design and stuff can't be like, oh, uh, this says mana value, and for one mana, you can transform it um, with Treasure Cruise. That's not good, right? We should make that some slightly different. And then they're just like, oh, you're right. And then... The, they just like slightly change it or whatever. And then they're like, oh, this is a cool design space. And then they just make like three more cars that do the same stupid thing. I think there, that might have happened. I, I'll give you that. That might have happened. But I, <laughs> and, but I also think that they might, like somebody might bring that up and then they'll just be like, yeah, fuck it. If it's a problem, we'll ban it. <laughs> yeah. I wish, I actually wish it was the other way. I, I, I wish that I could treasure cruise and make an 8 8 flyer off of Maniform Hellkite. I think that would be rad. Yeah. I, I think it, I think this change is meant to make the cards play more intuitively because everybody can, everybody thinks, nobody realizes mana value is just a characteristic of, of the cards. And I, I agree, that's just sort of a thing you have to learn as you're playing Magic, the same way, you know, people learn to, to play with like mana burn and damage on the stack. Uh, that doesn't really add much. But it is a clean, I think it's a cleaner thing to put on a card than the mana that you spent to cast this spell, which is just reads really awkwardly, uh, even if it's ultimately a little bit more intuitive. And it honestly should not be that hard to teach people what mana value is. You know, Magic's already a ridiculously complicated game. Uh, you know, but there, there are certain things that, 
you know, I'm, I'm willing to accept. And maybe that's just me being biased for being an entrenched player who's played for 20 years and understands all these things. Yeah, but you um, also get questions all the time, like, does uh, does Vandal Blast get through Chalice of the Void? Or does, you know, just like random shit like that, like, you know, can uh, can I cast a flashback Ancient Grudge when my opponent has a Chalice of the Void on X equals 2, and will it resolve? And it's just like, no, it's going to get countered, even though you only spent one mana to cast it. It's, it's mana value is two, and I know that that sounds stupid, and that's because it is stupid. No, it doesn't sound stupid. It's just a characteristic of the card. It, okay, it, it, listen, Ross, but you're, but a characteristic of a card doesn't necessarily imply that it is intuitive to understand. Like, I literally have problems with shit like that. Not that specifically, because I've been playing forever, but, like, that type of little rules interaction shit comes up all the time in Magic, and when, when someone tells you that they are, like, not getting it, or, like, it doesn't make that much sense fundamentally... And you're just like, well, read the fucking card. Like, it's not helpful, you know? Like, it's clearly there's a disconnect somewhere, and so you have to find the disconnect. And the disconnect is mana spent versus mana value. That's literally the difference. Yeah, I understand that. But I... I to me, the, the, that is not a particularly high barrier. To learn that mana value is a innate characteristic of a card... And honestly, that like that makes it nice and easy, right? You know, if Chalice of the Void kept saying like mana, like countered based on mana spent, it would be much more awkward to track like it, how it played with tax effects and reduction effects and things like delve would be really strange. And right. but honestly, I think it would things... create even more problems instead okay. of like instead of being very simple and just look at the top right of the card. Okay, but it doesn't say look at the top right of the card, okay? It says some weird shit that they just changed. So it used to be converted mana cost, now it's mana value, right? And I will say this from experience. I've played a lot of games, like a fucking lot of other games. And whenever they do cost reduction stuff and there's things that fuck you over or that give you a boost for a cost reduction, it always works how you think it's supposed to work. Like an Ancient Grudge costing one mana in my opinion, should be able to flash back and destroy a Chalice of the Void where X equals 2. I think that's just intuitively, the mana spent to cast the spell should be what is the, you know, quote-unquote mana value or converted mana cost. I know that's not what it is, but I'm saying that in other games, it is. And so when people play this game, and there's a lot of extra complicated shit, and you start using terms like mana value, which just have no fucking... They just have no meaning to someone who's never played before, and they barely have meaning to people who've been playing for twenty years because they just changed it. Like it's gonna cause problems. That's just how how games work. That's how rules work. They're just complicated to solve issues that you think are gonna come up, and instead you just make something unintuitive. Sure, but I don't think this solves any any of those problems because not every single uh, you know effect that references mana value can just be changed to mana spent no i agree it's, it's like, not you know I, dark confidant could never could never work that way because you're not actually spending mana and so now all you're doing is you were leaving mana value as a concept so if you want to play magic you still have to be familiar with it but now we're adding a set of cards that look like they work off mana value because they work very similarly to a bunch of cards that work off mana value but those ones don't work off mana value so we're not actually solving the problem that you've talked about which i agree is a problem but we're introducing other problems by now having this other thing that also doesn't like that just works differently 
So we're I mean, just agree, we're actually making I'll... things more complicated. Okay, so I, I don't think it's that much more complicated, man. I think you could just literally look at any of these cards and just like understand how they work the first time you read them. Like I think I think that you talking about how these are annoying or whatever is dumb. I think that it's bad. Like you're you're just complaining for no reason. Like mana form Hellkite. Okay, I, I play a three mana card, right? And then I make a three three. That's super clean, super simple. All you have to do is read the card and do exactly what it says, and everything's fine. So like, you know, like Memory Deluge and Maniform Hellkite and Smoldering Egg, these are like the three cards that kind of do this. And they're probably going to make some more. But like, I've just been kind of thinking them the same way I think about Sunburst, where like you just, it, you know, it's just counting the literal investment of the card instead of like some made up shit like Mana Value. So. Yeah, and look at look how intuitive Sunburst is. Okay, well that's a bad example. Maybe Shaheen, Shaheen didn't know that he could. Don't, uh, please don't. You know, spend one mana to exile a, a Ragavan with um, prismatic ending until after he started four zero in modern during so, the invitational. So, are you suggesting <laughs> that we uh, build magic policy based on Shaheen Sarani's potential or understanding of a mechanic? No, I'm suggesting that we don't. You know, overcomplicate things. I, I'm su- I'm suggesting that like I, I'm all for making magic more intuitive and ha- making it easier for newer players to get into the game. And I under I understand that this change is an attempt to do that, but I don't think it accomplishes that goal. That's right. what I'm complaining about. That's fair. That's fair. I just I just <laughs> think that they're cool, and I think that your beef with them is like way overblown. Is all. And and what it does is it makes the game less intuitive for me because oftentimes now like I read over a card. And, you know, part of my like brain fills in what it does because it, I've just seen that pattern so many times. So sometimes I can literally read a card and not see that it works differently because my, like, you know, my, oh, my yeah. brain filled it in. Like, it's like a fucking autocorrect. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely... You, yeah, human brain does that a bunch. Yeah. Um, so, you know how whenever a new set comes out, Cedric asks us to do a top five cards for a specific X format for the new set? Yeah. Um, so if I had Smoldering Egg as my number one card for Pioneer because I said that it worked with Treasure Cruise and Dig Through Time. And then <laughs> on Monday morning at 7 a.m., I got a message from our editor, John Del Beatty, and he's just like, hey, what did you mean by this? And I just read it again, and I'm like, oh, I'm I'm just wrong. I'll go fix that. And then I just like rewrote the paragraph and just, just like, even though this doesn't work with Treasure Cruise <laughs> and Dig Through Time... It's still good, and I just felt so fucking stupid, dude. I just felt like the biggest moron. So oh I, man! So I get it. You know, I get it. I'm there with you. I I wrote. Uh, I got a message from JDB uh, for my article last week because I submitted a, a deck list with Magda Trader to Mortals in it instead of Magda Brazen Outlaw. Nice. <laughs> Which shows you where my brain is. I'm writing the the card name from 2003. Uh, okay. That's enough talk about Manaforp Hellkite. Um, I'm gonna move us on to what has thus far been my favorite card from the set, and I think is very, very good, um, is Cemetery Prowler. So this is part of that cemetery cycle of, of mythics. I think it's easily the best one. It's a one green green three four wolf, has a vigilance. When Cemetery Prowler enters the battlefield or attacks, exile a card from a graveyard. And spells you cast cost one less to cast for each card type they share with cards exiled with Cemetery Prowler. So notably, 
this does not continue to reduce the cost based on how many of a certain card type you have exiled. So if there's three creatures underneath Cemetery Prowler, your creatures don't cost three less. It's just a matter of if there is one that matches, you get one. Um, you know, if you happen to be casting a creature enchantment, like uh, was it not Lumengard Warden, it was what was the five mana one from Future Sight that was a creature enchantment. But uh, I guess we can say an, a god, that would work yeah, better. But if, if you have a creature and an enchantment under Cemetery Prowler, you know, your gods cost two less. Or at least some of them do. Some, some of them aren't enchantments. But uh, So that, that kind of thing is how this card works. But to me, on, it I has... Got, hold on, I got it. All right, so if yeah. you have a, a creature that is an artifact, enchantment, land, sorcery, and an instant, and then you exile all those things with Cemetery Prowler... It costs one less for each card type that it shares. See, just read the card. Just, <laughs> just read the card. It says it all, you know, it says it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the obvious comparison is um, is Graveyard Trespasser, right, from, from last set, which has not seen really any play. Uh, that's it. I think that's largely a function due to it not really having a home. I do think that card is good enough to see play. But this one is going to fit into green decks, which are already playable. And the, you know, incidental graveyard hate is going to be really helpful. You know, exiling Galvanic iterations, exiling memory deluges. It's horseshit. Um, you know, exiling creatures against Agadim's Awakening. I don't know. I can name a bunch of other things that it, it could do. But uh, that kind of incidental graveyard hate is very nice to have. The body is quite good. Uh, oftentimes, red removal deals three damage. I know towards the end of the season, it was mostly dealing with four because of the presence of, of egg and leer. Uh, whether that changes, who knows? But I, I often don't. I, I, I don't want to take a blindly short-term view of each card and see just how does it fit into what the current metagame looks like. You know, yeah. These cards are going to be in standard for a while, yeah. uh, and oftentimes this card is going to dodge red removal, and it is going to just be you know a, the, like that. Three, four stats are, are really good. Playing vigilance means having vigilance means you can play offense and defense with it, which I like and. This cost reduction effects are, are really, really strong. I was playing it in a graveyard deck earlier this week on Versus, and having my Skyclave Shades cost one mana Ooh. makes them so much easier to recast from the graveyard. And kicking it too, a little less too. Yeah, and, and yeah, kicking it for four even. So uh, I, I was doing some really cool stuff with Cemetery Prowler. Even in just like a Gruul deck, being able to curve it into a five drop if you're able to exile a creature, um, you know, it is really, really strong just making your removal spells a little bit cheaper. Like this card is just going to make it very easy to double spell on turn four. No, right? I, I agree. I think, um, I think that part's cool. I, I, the only thing that I don't like is I, I don't like that every color just kind of gets casual incidental graveyard hate. Like maybe the graveyards have been interacted with not enough for far too long or whatever. And they're just like, okay, every single color, Gets a two or a three mana card that can enter the battlefield and exile something from the graveyard. I kind of hate that. I feel like the the graveyard is this place that's supposed to not be utilized that often. And I think that they've really pushed graveyard utilization in the past 10 years. And because of that, like, they feel like they need to have more ways to interact with it, which I, I kind of agree. But, like, that used to be part of, like, the color pie. You know, like something, some things used to be able to interact, some didn't, and and some were protective, and some were uh, more defensive, and some were more aggressive about using versus fighting it. And um, 
and I don't know, man, like Cemetery Gatekeeper is the red one in the cycle. Uh, like there's one for each color and the, the red one's just a two mana, two, one first strike that exiles something from an, any graveyard. And that and red should, shouldn't be able to fucking do that, if you ask me. I think that's dumb. That's just not I, their wheelhouse. I actually like it. I think their color pie was far too rigid in the early days of Magic, and it led to a lot of imbalance in how cards were designed and developed. And it, uh, in large part it, due to blue being really the only car, color that got card advantage, which is such a fundamental part of the game. The, fa- the fact that the graveyard is just a zone, if it's a zone that anyone can use, it should be a zone that anyone can interact with. So, like, is it gets flashback. White has creatures that come back from the graveyard, so does black. Green gets to use the graveyard more often with lands uh, and other things. So, if every color can use the graveyard, every color should be able to interact with the graveyard. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like there should just be, like, types of ways that each color can interact with the graveyard in positive and negative ways. Like, I don't think a... a you know, for example, I don't think green should get lightning bolt, you know, and I think and like while red has lightning bolt and uh, white can deal damage to creatures and, and black can deal damage to creatures. I don't think that like green should just get, you know, a shock or whatever, yeah. you know, but but saying green shouldn't get shock is not the same thing as saying green shouldn't get removal at all. And in the early days, like, green really didn't get removal, and now it does, well, but it does so in green ways, usually yeah. with fight, you know? I agree. That's why I think Prey Upon is, is you know, whoever figured that out, <laughs> to have that as, a, like, green removal, and it's been sort of the th- that way ever since, and they do it in slightly different ways, but, you know, that is a green way of giving them interaction with creatures, and that's something that is necessary for every color to do. And while, you know, red has damage-based removal, black gets you know, destroy base removal, usually with some restrictions or maybe life loss that goes along with it. White's removal is often permanent base. So while it's often very flexible, it's sorcery speed. And if those permanents get removed, then, you know, you're shit out of luck. But if they don't get removed and it's a creature, you got like that two for one. So there, there's some tension there. And then, you know, blue doesn't get as much hard removal, but they get really good bounce. They get steel effects. They get, um, you know, lockdown effects. Um, other ways of answering creatures so the you know that to, that to me is following the color pie in the way it makes sense so like there are there are certain things that are absolutely fundamental to the game of magic and every color should be able to tap in and do those things and they should be able to interact with all forms of permanence and you know gain access to fundamental resources uh in magic but they should do so in ways that make sense with the personality of, of that color. So, um, you know, th- the fact that every color can interact with the graveyard makes a lot of sense. If your beef is that, like, this cycle of cards is just all creatures that ETB to exile cards from the graveyard, that, yeah, that I think is a little bit sloppy. Okay, here's the follow up on this specifically. So, uh, if you look at the cemetery creatures, um, the black one, the blue one, and the green one all say when they enter the battlefield or attack. And uh, so the black one does not say that. It's the blue, green, and white one. Or I'm oh, sorry. The black one says enters the battlefield or dies. The blue one says enters or attacks. And the green one says enter attacks. And the red one and the white one both just say enter. Okay. It should be the green and white one that do it when they attack. And the black one doing it when it dies makes sense. And the blue and red only when it enters the battlefield. So I think they just need to swap white and blue. And it's weird to me that... that Blue gets to do it when it attacks, and white doesn't. 
like wh- white and green are attacking colors. Even red is more of an attacking color than blue. So I why think, is that? Uh, why is that going on? Well, I'm kind of reading over or whatever. So the red one is like it is because it doesn't. You don't want to like lock your opponents out of being able to cast anything, and if you have it trigger whenever it enters or or attacks, like it kind of keeps them from being able to cast many spells without taking massive amounts of damage. And similarly with the Illuminator, it wants uh, so the blue one is a two three flyer for one and two blue. Uh, when it enters a battlefield or attacks, exile card from a graveyard. Uh, you may look at the top card of your library at any time. Uh, once each turn, you may cast a spell from the top of your library if it shares a card type with the card exiled with Cemetery Illuminator. So it kind of gives you. I, I think that the ones that kind of give you um, a weaker effect, but a more broadly good effect. Uh, they want you to be able to get it triggered multiple times. But if it's like a devastating effect or preventative measure, like Cemetery Gatekeeper, the red one, I think they just want you to only just like lock down one type of thing. Um. Well, then why doesn't the white one trigger when it attacks? Like getting 1-1 one, one seems fine. Uh, because they don't want you to get a 1-1 one, one whenever you play anything. Because if it if you got like a bunch of things exiled with it, you would just get a 1-1 one, one whenever you made a game action, and that would be bad. Why would that be bad? Because that would mean the card just... is attacked like five times. The game is probably over by then. Um, so it has flash, so it would enter, block, and then attack, and then you would play a land and get a 1-1, one, one, and then play a spell and get another 1-1, one, one, and that's just like maybe too much. I don't know, man. I didn't play test these cards. I'm just saying, like, uh, they're, they're different in weird ways, and I don't under- and I'm trying to figure out why, and I think this is why. But I don't like that they're different in these ways that much. I, I doubt that the answer is development. I, I would imagine that the answer is s- somehow f- flavor motivated. Uh, you know, that's why the black one is dies and, and it's so different. Um, so I, I'm, I guess it's because, oh, I, I think if you like the white is the protector and red is the gatekeeper. So those two ha- are much more defensive just in what they're doing. Whereas Prowler and Illuminator seem more aggressive. I think that's the reason why. They're just kind of running around in the graveyard, yeah, I guess. I, you know, the, I think a lot more of these decisions are driven by flavor than than by you know a, the way we would think of it as like what makes a, a better game experience in, from from our competitive perspective. So, all right. Speaking of game experience, I have a I have a follow up on this. Um, what do you think of Averbrook Caretaker? Um, which one is that? It's the oh. So four, yeah, 4GG, uh, 4 4 Human Werewolf, has Hexproof. At the beginning of combat on your turn, put two plus and plus one counters on another target creature you control. Has a Daybound. The backside, Hollowhenge, Huntmaster, a 6 6 Werewolf with Hexproof, other permanents you control have Hexproof. At the beginning of combat on your turn, put two plus and plus one counters on each creature you control. I think this card is absolutely busted and limited and unplayable and constructed. Uh okay. I I think that this is like Carnage Tyrant level good and constructed, but I just don't know if Carnage Tyrant is that good and constructed these days. I guess is my my big takeaway. It's I think, it's I one think of the trying most... to cast Averbrook Caretaker against Divide by Zero and All Runs Epiphany is mm. <laughs> barking up the wrong tree. No, that's fair. That's uh I mean you you right. You right. And, and like even later on that like there's going to be sweepers and things like it it, it doesn't really produce a, a ton of immediate impact and when I'm when I start looking at even four mana cards but especially five and six mana cards in standard I need really high immediate impact to want to put that investment 
into the card. And it's not like Carnage Tyrant was like unbelievably good in its day. It was a role player, uh, you know, as good as its stats were. So th- this card does not strike me as particularly playable. But it's also really, really busted and limited. Holy shit. Um, right, but we're we're specifically talking about like play pattern, like in- good, interesting play patterns. And I was gonna say that Aberbrook Caretaker has maybe the worst play patterns. I have ever seen. Yeah, I'll agree with that. On any magic card ever. <laughs> yeah, I think that I I'm not a fan. I I literally never want to play with or against that card in my entire life. Yeah, I feel like I would always be disappointed, no matter what side of the coin I'm on, dude. <laughs> <laughs> That's just like not fun. All right, um, I, you know what? What do you want to do next? I, I'm out of here. You know. <laughs> I'm, off, I'm off of these cards anyway. I mean, I I I chose Cemetery Prowler. It's your turn now. Oh, I did Everbrook. Anyway, okay. Oh, um, you you want to do Everbrook? Okay, no, okay. I'll, I'll do I'll do Chandra then. Okay. I wrote an article about Chandra. Chandra dressed to kill. Tell me about it. So one red red three loyalty legendary planeswalker Chandra plus one add red Chandra dressed to kill deals one damage to up to one target player or planeswalker plus one exile the top card of your library. If it's red, you may cast it this turn. And minus seven, exile the top five cards of your library. You may cast red spells from among them this turn. You get an emblem with whenever you cast a red spell, this emblem deals X damage to any target, or X is the amount of mana spent to cast that spell. Um, So once again, we see that new templating uh, of mana spent and supposed to mana value. And but I, I do think this card is very powerful. Obviously, it has to be in the right shell where you're, you know, at least majority red cards, if not just a mono red deck. Um, so far, my experience with it has been Corey hits the perfect card off of it every time, and I never hit a spell. Um, but <laughs> that was just the week I had on Versus Live. Regardless, the the thing I really like about this card is the synergy between the two plus one abilities. The minus seven is not going to come up very often. It's all about those first two. But if you think about it, the first ability, adding mana, is a tempo-oriented ability. It helps you get cards out of your hand, cast your spells more quickly. You can go turn three, uh, you know, play Chandra, plus make a red, cast a Spike-Filled Hazard, a Frostbite, a Play with Fire, and kill an opposing creature. Maybe, you know, use multiple uh, spell, or one spell plus the trigger to kill a Planeswalker. I don't know. Um, but, you know, that killing that a creature will keep the pressure off the Chandra, and maybe the next turn you can plus cast your goldspan dragon, cast a different five drop, maybe double spell that turn with a three and a two, and really get ahead of your opponent uh, using that first ability. And then once you're ahead and your hand has been expended, you use the second ability to reload and keep the pressure on and make sure that you can close out the game before your opponent's able to draw back in. So I really like that the the two abilities are relevant in very different situations. The plus one, you know, the you've got card advantage and you've got tempo, uh, both of those things, and you've got a little incidental damage. So you're really fighting on all three of, of Patrick Chapin's axes there. If you haven't read Chapin's Unified Theory of Magic, I think that article is great. Um, it's from like ten years ago, but um, I, I reference it a lot. So that's the thing I really like about the card. Obviously, like the, the red restriction means that it's a narrow range of decks that it's good in, but I think it's very good in those kinds of decks, and I'm hopeful that it is good enough to. You know, carry mono red back to some sort of relevance, whether it's mono red aggro or more of a mid range deck. Uh, there's a, a lot of different ways that I took it in my article from last week. 
All right, so Chandra Dress to Kill is pretty cool. Um, I watch y'all play it on Versus Live a bit. The plus one uh, to make mana seemed like the better of the two abilities, specifically because, like, you know, we were talking about it earlier, you don't just, like, run out of stuff to do a bunch. Um, and so, like, the mana is is a huge deal. Uh, I think we're kind of spoiled with, like, Teferi Time Raveler and stuff protecting itself as a three-mana Planeswalker. I think three-mana Planeswalkers in general should not be able to protect themselves very easily. So I really like the design of this card in general. The card advantage aspect you mentioned, great. Uh, the plus one to get mana, great. Those are, like, two of the three ways that you would want a Planeswalker to interact, right? It's, like, mana, card advantage, and then removal. And so this does, like, two of the three on a three-mana Planeswalker. is kind of great. Can can I rant about this whole every Planeswalker gets evaluated based on whether or not it can protect itself and a very narrow definition of what protecting itself means? I think that, I think we've gotten really lazy. I don't think I can this. stop you, so... Yeah, so <laughs> we've gotten really lazy with this, and everybody just looks at Planeswalkers and wants them to function as removal spells in, in, with some of the modes. Even if, like, if Chandra had, like, a minus two, you know, deal two damage to a creature, people are like, oh, it protects itself. That's good. And honestly, like, that would make it... If you replaced either of the first two abilities with that, I think it would be a worse card. And, you know, the 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 fact of the matter is the mana-making ability does help you protect the card. Because, one, it pluses it up to four, which is a tough amount of, you know, power to, to be attacking with on turn three. Obviously, if you're on the draw, it gets worse, but that's how all Planeswalkers work. And you just figure out how to protect it by realizing that that plus one lets you cast one mana removal spells. And guess what? There's three different, there's at least three of them. I named them earlier in, in standard alone right now. So I, I think this card actually does protect itself as long as you build your deck correctly. Okay. Um, I mean, I'll counter that with um, when, when people say it protects itself, they mean like, can it come down against one creature from the opponent? and and survive and again with shadow dresser kill specifically cannot do that in any way yes it can how many four power creatures come down and attack on turn three so you just by using any ability you have now effectively protected itself you got to look at these things in context now everyone wants to completely ignore context and evaluate every card like it exists in a fucking vacuum like, just think about what people are doing and imagine that context. I know I said earlier with Cemetery Prowler that, like, I don't want to look at exactly how the metagame looks right now. But th that just means my point when I said that is that the context of standard changes. And obviously there are some bounds within which standard generally operates. Like, how often do you see people attacking for four on turn three in standard? Um, especially, like, you know, fucking if you've interacted with the them time, on turn two. Just fucking every single game that you play. Just everyone attacking for four on turn three. Yes, every single game. Well, mono, the mono green aggro deck as it existed before this set comes out was literally incapable of doing that unless you like used a pump spell. Or, uh, oh, in, but context, but context. <laughs> the uh, like mono can using mono Ranger white class, can using Blizzard Brawl to give the buff. Playing, you know, I don't know, man. I'm saying but, like. It's but not. They, it's not always just one creature either, right? Like it. Sometimes it's like two small creatures, and it can't fucking kill either of them, and it can't make a blocker to kill either of them. Like the reason why people evaluate planeswalkers like this is because the way that you can gain value from them is from them staying on the battlefield for more than one turn. And if a planeswalker does not have the ability to help in that regard in any way other than generate one mana, 
most of the time it's going to be bad and i'm going to just say it right now you on versus live you and Corey both played this card multiple times and every time you're like I don't, it just doesn't feel that good like i think fuck even Corey like ultimated it once and it's just like five cards off the top that just weren't red it just fucking did nothing yeah Corey ultimated it when he shouldn't have done it the- okay well if if you have a time where you're supposed to ultimate a planeswalker that's not when it reaches the point then that's a f- bad fucking planeswalker well, that's definitely not true. The ultimate on the Planeswalker is the least relevant ability. Uh, well, it's the one that's supposed to have the greatest impact if you reach that. And if you can make an argument for you to not do the ultimate regularly, or like then like it's just that's just not good. Also, the, the impact for, was already there. Like he he plussed and exiled in a uh, Goldspan Dragon and started putting me under immediate pressure. Like his Chandra was actively good if you watched the five turns leading up to that poor ultimate. Uh, if I'm remembering that game correctly. My, my point is that like because these cards exist inside a deck, it like the fact that it doesn't protect itself is not necessarily a death knell. And you have to look w- within other contexts. And, and if you remember Chandra, um, 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 what was the good Chandra? Torture Defiance. You know, that card ostensibly could protect itself, right? It had a minus three ability that dealt four to a creature. But it was very rare that you actually saw people want to use that ability to kill a creature. More often than not, the best thing you could do with it was plus make two red mana and cast a harness lightning to kill the opposing creature. Like this Chandra is going to operate in the same way. Uh, you know, obviously it's not on the level of, of Chandra Torture of Defiance. That card was busted. But the like most of the time, the you know quote unquote abilities that protect the Planeswalker are minus abilities. Like if you look at Soren, it has that minus two to create a blocker, the two three vampire token. You know, those. I don't think that ability protects it nearly as well as just plussing and having it on five loyalty. Uh, like loyalty counts are, are an, another element of this equation. So my, my my rant was just about how reductive our analysis of planeswalkers has become, and that sort of generalizes to how reductive our analysis of cards is as well. You should always be looking, reading a card, and thinking like, what is the situation in which this card is maximized? What is the, and not only situation in terms of the deck that it puts in, but what role is it playing in that deck? Is it a cyber card in that deck for certain matchups? Is it a, you know, a card that you put in your deck in certain metagames? There's always different micro variables to consider when I talk about context as an, as an overarching factor in magic. I should write an entire article about context because it's so important and no one understands it i'm so i'm bored right now listen to you honestly (laughs) how is this boring because okay magic interesting ross okay here's the thing man i'm saying that like this is how we rate things in the two minutes that we're talking about the card and your thing is we should spend 75 minutes on each card discussing the context of how each of these is good. But that's not how it works. Like, we don't have that much time. We don't have – we do not have the fucking mental energy to to add context to every single card that we're trying to evaluate on the spot. I'm trying to evaluate Chandra, Dress to Kill, on the spot of how does this compare to things that have happened in the past and – in the past, when other ob- game objects that functioned similarly, they there was this line in the sand, and that line was: can it kill an opposing creature? Can it, you know, uh, replace itself via card advantage immediately? 
And the answer for Chandra specifically is no. And so I think that there is a good chance because of that line in the sand that it ends up not seeing that much play. But what what you say of it goes to five loyalty, it doesn't. It goes to four. You're wrong. I said four. You said five. I was talking about Soren when I was comparing. Oh, uh, sorry. I just, like I said, I was zoning out. Anyway, <laughs> but no, it does, it goes to four and like it gives you a mana and you can use that mana to either play one mana creature or one mana removal spell. And that can can help do the thing that we're talking about. Or it can just have four loyalty on turn three. And you're like, if you interacted on turn two at all, or if you played a creature on turn two to block four loyalty is going to be really difficult for them to deal. Okay. Also, it doesn't take that long to explain context. Like, Chandra, you want to play it with one mana removal spells, five mana threats that you can ramp into, and lots of red cards. Yeah, and you already if, said all if, that stuff. Yeah, if you do those three things, Chandra could be very good. Yeah. So Chandra is a narrowly powerful Planeswalker. If As long as you satisfy the conditions to maximize the strengths of its abilities and minimize its weaknesses, that's context. Sure. That's how we should be evaluating cards. But you already said all that. Yeah, I did that inherently while talking about the card. Because I'm fucking smart. SMRT. <laughs> that meme has been referenced like four times to me in the last two days. <laughs> What's well, good? It's a good meme. Rob Did you know that that was not in the best... script? Have I told you that? <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, th- that that line uh, of SMRT, and then he goes, "I mean SMART." That was not in the script. Dan Castellaneta, who voices Homer Simpson, just made the mistake organically and corrected himself, and everyone in the room laughed, and they kept it in. Nice. It was just completely by accident. Just like the chocolate chip cookie. All right. Can I give a beef card? A, be- a card yeah. I have beef with? Um, all right. Do you remember Jace Friend's Prodigy? Is this Jacob Hawken? Can I? Have, Inspector? Can I, can, I, can I do mine? Yeah. I remember Jace Friend's Prodigy. Do you remember Jace Prodigy? Yeah. Fuck that card. Next. Let's move on. I'm just kidding. Uh, no, you're right. Jacob Hawken, Inspector. Uh, two mana, O2. Very similar to Jace Vince Prodigy. Uh, tap, draw a card. Very similar to Jace Vince Prodigy. And then the back, instead of discard, you exile it face down. And then you may look at it for as long as it remains exiled. Um, and then still inside this ability, you may pay four colorless and two blue. And if you do, it transforms. On the back end, it's Hawken's Insight. Legendary Enchantment. At the beginning of your upkeep, exile the top card of your library face down. You may look at that card for as long as it remains exiled. Once during each of your turns, you may play a land or cast a spell from among the cards exiled with this permanent without paying its mana cost. So, long story short, two mana, O2, tap it to draw and exile card face down. Uh, Inside the ability, spend six, transform it into an artifact that lets you, or sorry, an enchantment that lets you play the stuff that's face down for free. Once per turn. A lot of text. This card is, like, why wouldn't they just reprint Jace Fringe Prodigy, you know? I don't think Jace is on Innistrad. You know what? They're not, but you know who's on Innistrad? Um, The three weird sisters who I've never heard of, you know? Godzilla's (laughs) probably here. (laughs) <laughs> jonathan harker who's jonathan harker this is the alternate version of jacob hawken right is jonathan harker like who jacob hawken's supposed to be modeled after is it like the dude from dracula that counter reese plays that gets yeah. bit jonathan harker is one of the protagonists in bram stoker's dracula uh, 
That must be why I don't know who it is because I never read. <laughs> I never read Dracula. I, I read Frankenstein when I was in sixth grade. I, I read Frankenstein read too. I like Frankenstein. Yeah, it was good. Um, um I, the I'm chuckling at this card because um we we misinterpreted it exactly how it worked on versus when it got previewed to us, which is understandable when the cards get read to us instead of us looking at them. It's difficult to grok sometimes, but yep. uh, one thing that when when it when it gets read to me, I think like, oh, I don't want to invest the six mana to try to transform it and have them kill it in response. But the way this card is templated, there's actually not a window between you committing the mana and when it transforms for your opponent to do that, which I really like because this is obviously already a pretty fragile card and has to live for, you know, uh, at least a, uh, at least a turn if you cast it on turn five, but presumably if you're casting it on turn two, it has to live for four turns in order for, for it to transform. So plenty of time for your opponent to interact with it, uh, but I, it's a real feel bad when you go for like your big payoff and your opponent's just like, okay, shock it, response, idiot. Yeah. Uh, and usually cards like that are, are unplayable as, as a result unless the, the sort of front half of them are, are quite good. Here, a two-man O2 looter is not the best, but as you say, like you know, Jason's Prodigy was an all-star in its days in in standard. Um, that card was much easier to transform on, you know, turn three, turn four. For free. Mm, yeah, and it, and it transformed for free. So th- this is a significantly worse card, but I think it's a much cooler card. And oh, the yeah. fact that you can't have that feel bad situation come up where you pay the six mana and your opponent kills it in response because it's all part of the the ability they have to respond to you looting. Yep. Once you start looting with the intention to pay the six, uh, it all happens as part of the resolution of one ability so that your opponent doesn't get priority during that time. Um, and then you get to start doing some cool shit. You get to start... Um, Casting Auron's Epiphany for free. Casting your the so have you seen the the seven man uncountable thing that can that like reman it like it casts uh it, it casts divide by zero when you play it. Have you seen this card? Do you know what it is? Um, the yeah, this the seven mana blue card. Hole breaker the, 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 the tight spot tyrant. Can, yeah. Can can we finish talking about how can before yeah, we move on? Sure, but it's a mono but blue the, card that you can cast off as well. Yeah, but the the other thing I like about this card is that the transform the transform doesn't mean it's a different game object. So all the cards that were exiled by Jacob Hauken Inspector are going to be exiled by the Hauken's Insight after it transforms. So you should be able to once you pay the six mana and transform it immediately cast something for free and recoup at least some of that mana. Now obviously, if you're casting a seven mana spell, you're netting mana and that's great. But you know, just casting a, a four mana card off of it, honestly, casting the uh, the the four mana sweeper Consuming Tide off of this and then just choosing the inside as your permanent is seems really cool to me. Um, that's a card that I think I'm higher on than most other people. And I keep trying to find ways to make it work, but, um, sorry, which card consuming tide. Oh, is that the bounce? Everything except one permanent. Yeah. Yeah. That but then if they have more cards in hand than you, after they bounce everything, you draw a card. Yeah. Cards great. Yeah. So I, I think that this card, I built a mono blue deck uh, around it that, had some holes, but there there was nuggets of good things going on. Um, it was right the the seven drop actually got previewed that day, so it wasn't in my deck, uh, and definitely would have been. But th- this card is much better than I initially thought it was because it was just a little bit hard to grok, and I hadn't sat down and really looked at it. I actually think Jacob has some potential here. No, I it's don't. not as it's not as good as Jace, but there's a lot of wiggle room, you know, in the worse than Jace region to still be good. It's just so close to Jace. Like, it's so close to Jace. I don't get why, like, 
So like, I don't think it's close to Jace at all, actually. It's literally a two-mana O2 looter that transforms. Yeah, and that's where the similarities end. How that's the looter works is very different. Stuff. That's most of it. Well, that's the, the looter... The, that's almost all of the front card. Well, it doesn't work with, with graveyard synergies. So, like, you know, Jace has been used to to help out, like, Reanimator and things like that. It doesn't fill your graveyard for delve and, and do things like that. The transform side is very different. You know, the, the, it's uh, so that like those two halves are completely different. So the front sides are somewhat similar, but still different in some respect. They transform very differently. Like this is more of a this is more of a sort of like heavy hitter instead of just a good, you know, source of, of sort of cheap card advantage. This is a really over the top game, game ending threat is what it turns into. Jace, I mean, you know, in its day, it was sort of because it was paired with Fetchlands and you could transform it so quickly, uh, that kind of elevated the power level of the card beyond it, you know, where it would be in a typical standard environment. Uh, and that allowed it to be more of a game ending threat than it actually, than it, than it would have been otherwise. So uh, I'm, I don't know, I'm just kind of excited to now try this card now that I fully understand what it does. Okay. Don't get me wrong. I want to try it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is, yeah, like this is a Todd card. But like, why not make it a one-two? Or why not like I don't know. It's just so it's just so close to Jace. It's just so close to Jace. You you think it being a one-two like appreciably separates it from Jace? I don't know. Like, why does that even matter? It you know, doesn't. Jace was released like six years ago. It was longer than that. When it, uh, Origins? When was Origins? Twenty fifteen. Okay. Well, all I'm saying is weird <laughs> that they would basically just make Jace Vrinn's Prodigy 2.0, right? It's just a two-mana O2 looter human that flips. And it's just like, you know, read another book. <laughs> like, calling them so similar because they're two-mana O2 looters that transform in some way is is a you know superficial analysis. So Well, they also, uh, Jace... Uh, Vrinch Prodigy was also right before uh, Shadows over Innistrad, right? No, Origins was right before Battle for Zendikar. Mm. It was a summer set because it was a core set. Fine. Whatever. <laughs> I, w- I was playing the Pro Tours then, Todd. So Wait, I, wasn't, I Battle, didn't, wasn't Battle for Zendikar into Shadows in the same year period? Wasn't it? Well, the, it was, so Battle was the fall set and then whatever the second set was for Battle and, and then Shadows was in the spring, yeah. So okay. the, so Jace was released nine months before Shadows of Ernestrong. Okay. They were in the same standard environment. All right. And they used it, uh, Jace, with uh, with Madness. Or at least I tried. It didn't work well. Well, this one doesn't this would, work this well. This would be even worse. <laughs> yeah, that would be even worse. Oh, you, on the, you spent six mana and then you cast Arrogant Worm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in for some Arrogant Worms. All right. Um, I've been looking over the set for like the last two days. I personally, I'm not super excited about it. Uh, I feel like a lot of like everything that makes a blood token just makes me tired. Um, everything that like, so they have two different four mana cards that like make you discard your hand and then draw that many cards. And like, sometimes it's plus one or whatever. Um, I don't know, man. Like what, is there anything that you really like? That that's coming out that you want to talk about? Um, I think Howling Moon is kind of cool. Don't know how good it is, but I like 
I like the card. Two and a green enchantment. At the beginning of combat on your turn, target wolf or werewolf you control against plus two plus two until end of turn. And whenever an opponent casts their second spell each turn, create a 2-2 green wolf creature token. That card is kind of cool. Yeah, like punishing your opponent for trying to get you back today once you've gotten it tonight, I think is really cool. Um, so like it, it doesn't strike me as like super powerful, but because you you have to, in order in order for it to be a sort of three mana 2-2 haste that has that ability, you need to have a wolf down that's attacking on turn two. And, you know, most of the time your opponent's trying to... to uh, to interact with you there. So you, you get kind of punished if you're trying to curve two drop into Howling Moon and, and your opponent, you know, has uh, Fading Hope for your wolf token from uh, Ranger class or has uh, a two mana removal spell for your um, uh, wolf pack leader, whatever the, whatever the fucking name. Yeah. The they're all, they're all the wolf pack three. leaders. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So th- th- there's, there's definitely some downside here, but I, I think this card is cool. This is the kind of card that I want to be good because I think it leads to somewhat interesting games. There's yeah. like there's risk reward here. There's a lot of tension um, in, inherent in that card and how it plays out. And I think that leads to interesting games. And I do think its power level is not, you know, I, I don't read that card and immediately think there's no way it sees playing constructed there. But I also don't think there's definitely a way that it sees playing constructed so it's in that gray area for me and i'm really i'm just optimistic because i want to see that card in play sure i also like welcoming vampire okay well uh, let me i want to do one now because you made me so sure where i'm looking at the previews with you uh so right next to howling moon is Howlpack piper uh it's three and a green for a two two this spell can't be countered human werewolf and then it's a green one tap you may put a creature card from your hand on the battlefield. If it's a wolf or werewolf, untap uh, Hellpack Piper. Activate only as a sorcery and as daybound. The backside is nightbound. Uh, it's a 4-4. Whenever this creature enters the battlefield or transforms into Wild Song Howler, look at the top six cards of your library. You may reveal a creature card from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Uh, so this card reminds me a lot of Elvish Piper. I think that's kind of what they were going through with because uh, it's called Hellpack Piper. Uh, as someone who started playing Magic around like sixth edition, seventh edition, uh, Elvish Piper was like one of the cool rares from Urza's block that got reprinted in a core set. And I just have like fond memories of just putting in these giant fucking monsters for like just a small amount of mana off of my Pipers. And the fact that this kind of lets you chain them off with big werewolves and wolves means that you get to do some real stuff with like Tolver's uh, Huntmaster and like just other just like huge, mo- like too expensive things. And I think that's just pretty cool. Yeah, unfortunately, being a four mana creature that doesn't generate immediate value and dies to everything <laughs> is a problem. Context, Ross. <laughs> Context. Yeah. Everybody can kill a 2-2. That's, a, that's the context. Yeah, so if you're spending no four mana for a two-toughness creature, it better generate immediate value because it's very likely to die, especially this one that you know has so much potential if, if you untap with it. So Yeah, but did you I'm, know that there's multiple cards in standard that can give it haste? So you have to look at it in that context. I'm a right So now it's a... So, okay, I'm so a let's look at it in that context. context here. Now, now it's a six drop if you want to give it haste, right? With, say Is with it? the Reckless Stormseeker. Well, you, you you pay four for it. You give it haste, then you pay two to use the ability. So, are, like, and you say cited Tovalar's Huntmaster as your immediate example of like Have you a heard cool of... card to put into play with it. So now you're just paying six mana for a Tovalar's Huntmaster with okay. extra steps. Yeah, and it's uncounterable. 
Yes, you, you are giving your you are make you are making it uncounterable. And that you don't is, play a, that is something. And you don't technically play a spell, so you can transform it into Nightbound. Well, you paid. Uh, you you played the Howlback okay, Piper so in the scenario. Ethervile, on that so you turn. have Ethervile on four. So, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm just trolling. I do. So I do like when they make cards that are just callbacks to old things that suck, like or that like used to be cool but still kind of suck. Like Howlback Piper is a bad rare for constructed but it's a cool rare for limited and i think it's like maybe cool for commander and like that that's the type of thing that i'm okay with the thing i love the thing i like about this card is that it um you know nor if you think of of cards like elvish piper or similar kind of effects you know once they do their thing and you put you know one or two creatures onto the battlefield with them they become irrelevant because the bodies are really small yep uh, because you're paying for the ability not the body right yep but with the daybound nightbound part of this card, you know it's transforming eventually into a four four. And obviously, as you noted, the the ability itself it makes it easy for you to you know use your mana effectively while still uh, changing day into night. And now you're generating card advantage, and you're creating a significant body on top of the value from the ability yeah. and the ability to dodge counter spells. So right. honestly, like there are contexts that I can imagine where this would be a, a reasonable cyber card. You know, if, if your opponent is very removal light and, you know, you're just trying to play to the board really quickly and go over the top of them in that way, this card can really help you do that. Yeah, I, I love that this is actually one of the uh, a pretty actually big incentive for for Nightbound for just like making sure that like your your werewolf synergies get off because the backside triggers when it enters the battlefield or transforms. So if, if you if it's nighttime and you play a wild song howler you get to look at the top six and you have a four mana four four so like this is another just like juiced up card if, if it's nighttime yeah so the, the you know that there's you know i, I know i kind of shot on the card at the beginning but i actually can envision a scenario where this becomes a sideboard card in the right metagame so this is a card that will like you know peek into sideboards for a week or two you know, every now and again, that that's sort of the height of it for me, yeah. which, you know, sounds very uh, pessimistic. Um, but when you come down to it, like there's not not a huge percentage of cards that get printed, see significant constructed play. So, you know, you got to got to appreciate the cards that are, you know, that, that peek in every now and again, like they they got to a level that most cards don't reach. It's like, you know, if you're the end of the bench guy on an NBA roster, like, you know, you still got to the NBA. That's yeah, pretty you're still a millionaire, good. probably. You know, if you if you took third on Jeopardy, you still got on the show. That's pretty cool. Did you get third? <laughs> I thought you got second. No, I took third. Aw. Okay. Um, Dude, I missed Final Jeopardy. Come on. Didn't miss any other Final Jeopardy that week, but. Yeah, weird. <laughs> weird how that works. Definitely not harder when you're under the gun. I mean, it was literally the the final Jeopardy in my horrible category of, of art, which has gotten better over the years. But uh, I know, like, if I was on the show, I wasn't missing the other ones. Yeah, I, actually, I think I went three out of five that week. I, I missed one about the call sign for for uh, CB radio being ten four. Uh, was... For those listening at home, I just want to make a, a statement. Um, I watched Ross's episode of Jeopardy. I think we were in Texas. We were in Columbus. We were in Columbus. We we're in a in a hotel bar. And Ross answered every question out loud in the bar as it was coming on the screen because he'd already knew the answers. That, <laughs> and he didn't get, like, most of them right on the show. It's like, 
Did you just go? So what happened? Did you just like look them all up after, or did you just remember the the real answers and they're burned into your memory for all eternity? Yeah, now? dude, it was only like three months later. <laughs> and you were just were you just like in your hotel that night after and just thinking like I knew CB Radio ten four. God damn it! Actually, the one I the one on my show that I was that I mostly regretted was the thousand dollar clue in the opera category which was just fill in the blanks of opera titles. And it was something, something of the blank West. And I just, something in the back of my head said it's golden. And I, I still to this day, don't know why I haven't looked up that opera, but the answer was just golden. Um, and I, I was, I didn't ring in and nobody else did. It ended up being a triple stumper. And Alex, you know, had the buzzer goes off and I was like, the answer was golden. And I was like, fuck. Yeah. I actually heard you say, fuck. They had to bleep it. <laughs> i did not say fuck on the show um somehow all right uh, that's that's a pretty good accomplishment i'm gonna segue that uh into uh a, an ability not a not a card specifically but an ability and you i want i want your true and honest old person thoughts on this ability okay this is one thing i posted on twitter i was like hey what do y'all think about the new set give me your questions whatever and the one that stuck to me the most was uh what's your opinion of cleave um should, should I explain what cleave does first? Sure. Well, cleave uh, is one of the new keywords. It, like, if you pay the cleave cost, you get to eliminate some of the uh, words in the text box of the card that are in brackets. So, like, dig up is a one green sorcery. Search your library for a basic land card and put it into your hand. If you pay the cleave cost of one green black black, you get rid of the basic land part of that. Uh, um, of that text, so you four mana can tutor for any card, like Diabolic Tutor. So it's split card, lay of the land, Diabolic Tutor. That's kind of, yeah, the split card is a great way to look at it. it. Each one of these cards just has a weird thing in brackets, and if it's a, if it's the cheaper version of the card, it's some, like, heinous drawback. And then if you pay the full value, it's like a normal costed card. Yeah, I mean, I, I just don't have very strong opinions about the ability like it's it's whatever it's just another sort of kicker split card modal way of doing things i think it creates ways to um there are ways there are certain types of cards that cleave execute is a cleaner way of executing than doing like a full split card or a modal card i think lantern flare is a good example of that one in the white instant deals x damage to target creature or planeswalker and you gain x life where x is the number of creatures you control and if you pay the cleave cost which is x red white you get rid of the last clause there uh, and you get to set x yourself regardless of how many creatures you control it's about how much mana you pay so it really does change the card pretty significantly uh you know uh, and but that would be a really weird split card to play because they're very similar effects so you wouldn't do it that way and there's no way you could do a modal card that way because they're two completely different costs so uh, you know, Cleave handles that pretty well. So I, I do think that, like, people who completely dismiss Cleave as just, like, there's nothing new to be explored here are wrong. Uh, it's about, like, creating somewhat similar effects that have very different costs and putting them onto the same card. Uh, and that is not something that, like, you you could do with, um, you know, or, or is, it's, it's sort of clumsy to do with Kicker. Like even dig up, which you could effectively do with kicker. Like it's, it's one green card. You give it kicker one black black, and you say if you paid the kicker cost instead to do this. Um, so that that one you sort of can do that way. Path of Peril is similar. It's one black black. Destroy all creatures with mana value two or less. But as cleave four white black. Um, actually, like that one you couldn't do with kicker, right? 
like a, there's no way to, to add from one black black to get to four white black. So, um, you know, those get like it, it allows you to have more space to play with the costs in the the card or the two modes of the card than otherwise would be available because cleave is an alternate cost instead of an additional cost. All right. I, uh, I agree. Uh, I, I, I feel not very strongly about cleave. Like I'm, I'm a big fan of modal cards and, uh, this is just like a new weird way to do modal. I, I just thought you would specifically not like the brackets. No, I think it's fine. I think it's pretty easy to grok. I thought um, you'd be more of an ellipses guy. Why in the world would they use ellipses? Are, they, are you talking about braces? Yes, braces. Like the cur- curly brackets? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just... You, you, were just you like could have used either or. It doesn't doesn't make a big difference to me. Okay. Uh, so when, when I see brackets, I think of matrices, so I get to think more about math. But when I see curly brackets, then I think of like... Uh, sequences and set notation so it's all math i shouldn't have done it okay uh so uh one new card we actually talked about this at uh, scg con we were just sitting around a table and um i I think uh your take on this card is something that i I do want to talk about because i think that this might be like a sleeper card of the set Uh, inspired idea it's two and a blue uh the cleave cost is three and two blue Uh, the text of the spell is draw three cards and then in parentheses, your maximum hand size is reduced by three for the rest of the game. So for three mana, draw three. Your maximum hand size is reduced by uh, three, so it goes down to four. Uh, but if you cleave it, it's just a five mana draw three. Yeah, um, I think this is a cool card. I still I haven't figured out a way that I really like utilizing it. Um, I, I like this card because it's not immediately clear to me how you maximize it. Um, so I think that I think it, the it's a challenging card to evaluate for that reason. There's definitely power there. You know, three mana draw three is a really powerful effect. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, how often is this card actually a three mana draw three? Obviously, it's coming with a pretty strong drawback, one that will often lead you to immediately discarding some of the cards, which is why, uh, if you remember it, when we were talking about this o- over the weekend, I compared it to Ideas Unbound. Yes, so Ideas Unbound, uh, old, old magic card, blue, blue, uh, sorcery draw three cards and then at the beginning of the next end step discard three cards so reducing your hand size by three kind of similar in that regard if if you cast inspired idea with the full hand you're essentially just gonna have to discard a million cards so yeah uh so i i don't really know where i'm i'm utilizing this card right now i haven't thought s- super hard about it but it's a card i i definitely want to look into um i'm not you know, sure. Either way, whether it'll be you know a, a good constructed card. If you you know come to my head, I would probably say no right now. Um, but this is the kind of card I like because I think it's there is power there, but it's a really tricky card to make work because it has such a unique and pretty detrimental drawback, um, and one that we're not really used to working with before. So it's not really that clear to me how best to utilize it. Obviously, like with cards that give you no maximum hand size, it's pretty cool, but that's more commander way of doing things. I think you could do it with like Reanimator, where you just cast this on turn three and end up discarding your reanimation targets for turn four. That's cool. Um, Yeah, like that's a cool way to generate card advantage in these crappy Esper Reanimator decks. But, you know, there's some downside if the game goes long of having to stay with a four card fucking hand. Yeah, but I, I think once you get to a certain point in the game, like it's pretty rare that like 
if ever you go below three cards in hand, it's going to be pretty hard to get above four during your end step. Like, it's going to require neither player doing anything for multiple turns and you not drawing any lands to play. Um, what Where I foresee this card uh, seeing a lot more play is, is in older formats, like... Uh, maybe like maybe modern but definitely like legacy or some maybe even vintage where you just have a bunch of uh like zero and one mana cards to play uh specifically like moxin or things like that or mishra's bobble i just think that like a, a a turn two or three like three mana draw three that just lets you spew out your hand is just like so or when you're already spewing out your hand it's good and i, I was kind of thinking of this card in a similar way of painful truths uh, back when Painful Truce was printed, everyone's like, oh, it's a three-mana draw three. That's disgusting. Uh, but the, the three life ended up being like pretty relevant in a lot of a lot of decks to try to play it. And the three different color casting costs, like I had to cast Painful Truce for only two colored mana like plenty of times, you know. Um, but Inspired Ideas is similar in that regard as it's like a three-mana draw three with some – you have to jump some hoops to, to really put it to good use. But if you pair this with like main deck duress or other one mana discard spells like Inquisition of Kozilek or, or Thoughtseize, you're going to empty your hand pretty quickly. And that's going to make it so that the reduced uh, hand size is not that big of a deal. Uh, so maybe that goes into, um, you know, a deck like uh, Zach Allen's uh, Grixis Lear deck where, you, you know, you just want like a cheap refuel once you've expended a lot of your early resources. Yeah, I think that would be a pretty good home for it. Um, I'm not as high on this card in, in older formats. I just think three mana sorcery is a lot to ask. Like pe- people don't really play painful truths in Legacy, and right? Because most a lot of the man, uh, artifact mana is colorless. What do you mean artifact? Uh, so uh, in Legacy, um, I don't know. Have you have you seen like the the Nihiri? I guess that one's more of a Lion's Eye Diamond deck. I don't know. Whatever. I was thinking more like Soaring and. Um, Mana Crypt. I, I think this card might be vintage playable, is what I'm saying. Um that's I don't even know what's going on in vintage these days, so I'm not gonna comment there. But three mana sorcery is like is a pretty high bar in those formats. Like th- three mana in those formats is kind of like five in standard. <laughs> uh is sort of the way I look at it, but um I, I do think it's an interesting card. Um and it's another one of those cards that I don't think I want to pair it with too much other blue. I think it wants to be in decks where blue is sort of the splash color. Yeah. Um, and, and you have a lot a lot of cheap interaction. You have the, the thought seizes and the dresses and the cheap removal and, and things like that. So I've been playing a ton of modern with the pitch elementals, like the solitudes and such. And I, I found that like any two or three mana spell that can gain you card advantage just makes those spells so much better. And uh, I think Inspired Idea in something like uh, Esper Blink or something like that might be maybe good in Modern, just because you just pitch your whole hand away so quickly to interact. Makes a lot of sense. Okay, um, the next card I want to talk about is Headless Rider. We haven't talked about any zombies yet. So this is a 2 and a black 3-1 zombie, and when Headless Rider or another non-token zombie you control dies... Create a two-two black zombie creature token, notably not one with decayed. You get you get an actual two-two zombie that can block and attack multiple times. Um, this card makes me really angry. Angry? <laughs> like, How does this make you angry? Uh, there are two reasons. Two reasons. One, and I'm looking for it right now. Um, 
where where is it um where are you uh there we go one is it is very similar in my opinion to arch ghoul of thraben so you've now just given us two two like very similar cards that give us some value when our zombies die uh, and they're both tribal so it's so like neither is good in a non really zombie deck uh, and it's going to be really hard to play both in a zombie deck because you just can't play that many threes. Archcold Thraben is a two and black three two zombie cleric. When uh, Archcold Thraben or another zombie you control dies, notably this triggers off tokens. The other one doesn't. You look at the top card of your library. If it's a zombie card, you may reveal it and put it into your hand. It's uncommon. You don't this card put that fucking, card in your hand. This card put sucks. Put it in the graveyard. Who cares? It's bad. I actually think Archcold Thraben might be better. You're an idiot. You're not an idiot. Uh, I love you. You're the best. But this card is a uh, uncommon that doesn't replace itself on the battlefield and like history has shown that when one card says put something into play and another card says put something into your hand and they cost the same then the one that puts it into play is just always better or most of the time better i agree i agree that is the that is the chief advantage of headless rider okay the uh, you know replacing your battlefield presence immediately is very very important yeah um, uh, you know, it would, it's much better to, you know, make a two, two for each creature that dies to their sweeper, as opposed to draw a card for each one. Even if you might think like your average card is better, even if, even if you know the average card you're going to draw is better than a two, two, um, because you, you, you've effectively already cast it. So it's, it's a, you, you're, you're sort of gaining mana, uh, in, in the difference of those two abilities. But, and here's my, here are my problems. One Headless Rider doesn't trigger off of tokens, which it can't because it makes tokens, and then it would create all of these infinite loops. But the primary things that you want to be exploiting, and zombies do a lot of exploiting, and the, uh, are decayed zombie tokens, which you can get very easily because they're not very powerful. So but not working with those is a really big deal. So it like doesn't work that well with Jadar, for example, which is one of the primary enablers for this kind of strategy that exists. Also... Headless Rider is a fucking 3-1 in a world of spike field hazards. I, I've cast the card multiple times already, and I, I don't think I've made a zombie yet, because it just gets fucking exiled. And so the second point of well, toughness on Arch of Thraben ends mistake, up being really important. Your mistake is playing against Corey all the time, who only plays blue-red decks in Standard, so... Well, that's the, been the most successful deck throughout Standard, and I, I think it will Look, continue to be. I agree, Spikefield hazards... And, it, and White also has a lot it. of exile-based removal. Were you playing uh, Jadar removal. in the same deck? Yeah, of course you're playing Jadar because you're playing all these exploit right. creatures. That's what the zombies do. Right, but I'm saying that like if you play a turn two Jadar, it'll probably get hit with a spike field, so your Headless Rider on three maybe won't. Sure, but there's there's still just that that problem because spike field hazard is such an easily main deckable spell as opposed to the one they just printed. They just printed Magma Spray that goes to Planeswalkers too. Yeah, f- flame blessed bolt. All right, I I have a sneaking suspicion that you may have misread Archcool of Thraben slightly. Uh, what? So at some point you said uh, drawing a card, like, uh, so if the card that you reveal is not a zombie, you don't put it into your hand. Yeah, you I may know. put so it you, into your graveyard. Yeah, yeah, you you draw half a card and you mill lands, improving your card draw quality on top of that. Okay, um, I'm still afraid that you think this card is good. And it's not good. Is that... I mean, it's very good with Jadar. I mean, Jadar is just good. This card is just bad. No, Jadar is not good by itself. Jadar needs help. Jadar is a, a, oh, context. a enabler. Context. 
Yes, Jadar <laughs> is an enabler. So what is the payoff that plays best with your best enabler? It's Archgold Raven, not Headless Rider. No, it's Exploit Creatures, actually. I agree the Exploit Creatures are also good. They also want you to be sacrificing the Decayed Zombies, as it's, opposed to sac- sacrificing the Jadar itself, which isn't even a zombie. If you don't sacrifice the Jadar, you sacrifice the creature you're casting that has Exploit, or and then you get a 2-2. Or you sacrifice the Headless Rider and get a 2-2. It's just another thing that's good. But then your Headless Rider sacrifice. is gone. Like, you want to be sacrificing the other cards so the engine keeps going. Okay, you can do that. You can. The only the only real card that, that fits that mold is, is Shambling Ghast, which is why Shambling Ghast is great, and I picked it as my most underrated card in AFR, and I'm super smart. But the like the, there's not actually a lot of non-token zombies that, that you actively want zero? to sacrifice. Hmm? Oh, wait, no, which one was Divide by Zero from? Mm, Divide by Zero Strix is Haven? Strix Haven, yeah, because it has a learn. Um... So the um, like, there's not a lot of, of zombies that you actually want to be sacrificing to these effects. Uh, you know, the 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 Demir one that is is actually often sacrificing itself. That says whenever you exploit a non-token creature, you make a two-two um, skull skull scob something like skull scob. Yeah, um, you know the, that one you you can sacrifice. Because you're still going to get its trigger, even if it ha- has to die that turn. Um, but like headless rider, you want to be on the battlefield because it makes it harder for your opponent to like you know kill your big champion of the parish and, and things like that. Um, and even um, even the really good one, the read the bonesy one, you know that card's a three two death touch. Like I don't want to be sacrificing that because it's good for my board position, especially against bigger creature decks like mono green. Uh, so I want to be sacrificing other things. So I mostly want to be sacrificing these stupid decay zombie tokens that my deck makes so many of, and Headless Rider doesn't work with those. Okay, well, first of all, I don't think you should be making that many decayed cards. I think decay in general is really bad and should not be a focus, except specifically for Jadar. I think Jadar is just a great card that creates like a sacrifice engine for you to for all your other cards to do stuff. But, like, you also need more than just Jadar. And I think that Headless Rider is just a great filler card that should not be, like, your overall game plan. But, like, it's okay to just sacrifice whatever exploit creature you're casting uh, to to get a 2-2 also, right? Like, it's, it's okay to trade off this kind of slightly better body uh, for the effect so that you get a 2-2. And I think that, like... That just being on the battlefield is just a thousand times better than just like maybe putting a zombie in your hand or whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, I th- I think the disconnect we're having here is that I'm imagining the the three two triggering a lot more often. So like you you can't compare it on a one for one basis. Obviously, if, if I'm getting one trigger of each, I would rather have a zombie, a two two zombie token, and trigger the headless rider than one trigger of archgul of Thraben. But with the way all of the other zombie cards work, I think you're going to trigger Archgul of Thraben like 20 more times over the average tournament than you will Headless Rider because it's going to survive a lot more often and you're going to have a lot more tokens die, uh, you know, relative to other creatures, at least when things are going well. The effect is so bad. It's not even bad, especially if you can use the graveyard in any way. The zombies don't use the graveyard that well, but you still have things like Aghanim's Awakening. You want to make a bet? Can we just make a bet and move on? (laughs) <laughs> I, I will bet you I will bet you a hundred dollars right now straight up on this program and maybe this is gambling on magic if that's the case that's not what we're doing <laughs> um, I bet the arch ghoul of Thraben 
never makes top eight of any event in standard ever. And I think that if either of them are to ever top eight any event in standard ever, it will be Headless Rider. And I will bet you $100 right now for the two years that this sets in standard that this is the case. There are way too many... um, um, Open or bigger? um, What is the word I'm trying to think of? Um, There are way too many... um, like not circumstances or a catch. It's another C word. We can come out. Um, we can come out with the things off, off camera. There's, there's a lot of details that would need to be ironed out That's there, fine. and I don't want to be actively betting live on magic related things. So I'm out for that. Look, all I know, Evan Irwin and Brad Nelson. Whenever they had new sets, they would do pie bets. Can we just do pie bet? If Art School of Thraben ever top eights a hundred person or bigger event, you can pie me in the face. So. But it has to be – so the, the bet only ha, will only pay out if one top eights and the other doesn't. Um, I mean, that's if, fine. If neither top I, eights I or so both top eight, I then it's a push. Okay. Well, I think that's unfair because I know that mine is way more likely to top eight. I am literally saying that if yours top eights, you can pie me in the face. That's all – I'm not – I don't want anything in return. I was going to bet $100. <laughs> now I'm just saying Art School with Draben will never top eight. I mean, I'm not that high on zombies as a tribe in general. I don't. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if neither top eights. I also think if one top eights, it'll probably be early in the season, and I think people are more apt to play the rare card as opposed to the uncommon card. So that there's advantages to your side here based on how I believe you the hive years. mind builds a dex. I'm giving you two years. That that doesn't change what I just said. Two years. Did did you not? Were you not listening to me, Todd? I often don't. I don't know if you understand our inter- <laughs> how we interact, but you you start talking. You just use some word I've never heard before, and then I just zone out. You know, I'm like, uh, well, what word did I use that you've never heard? I before? don't remember. I zoned out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's fine. I, just, I haven't used many big words in this podcast. Uh, well, <laughs> relative. I'm just kidding. Uh, but seriously, though, I would I would love to move on because uh, I don't know why you think this card's good, and I just want to have it in I didn't writing. say it's good. I said it's better than Headless Rider. I made a relative statement, not an absolute one. If you have two bad cards, one is still better than the other, right? But they can both be bad. Okay, but I'm saying Headless Rider is like Rotlung Reanimator good. It's like... Uh, what's the other one? What was the one for humans that was that still mm, sees play? Zathred Necromancer. It's Zathred Necromancer for zombies. This card will be. I think Headless Rider will see play in modern. I think it's extremely so, good. I was also talking within the context of standard. Okay, but so, sure. In the context of standard, um, I, that's fine. I still think it's a thousand times better than the piece of shit art. You know, stupid yeah, uncommon I, zombie thing where you sometimes put a zombie in your hand. Headless Rider will be a significantly better card in Pioneer and Modern. I agree, I agree there. Uh, honestly, like it, it, it has potential in both of those formats. I agree. Um, because in the abstract, I do agree it's a more powerful card. All right, how about this? But no bets. I'm, ang- I'll just I'm angry that they. I'm angry that they just printed this like anti-control card for an an interesting tribal deck in standard and just made it match up very very poorly against a very commonly played removal spell. And I, I like I understand that they like you know don't know how the metagame is going you know years in advance. So it's like I can't really be like that mad at them. Uh, but I'm just annoyed at the reality of the situation. 
Um, okay, but the reality of the situation is that the three mana uncommon you think is good is not. And so I didn't say it was good. I made a very specific statement, and you keep trying to generalize it and attack a straw man. Well, this is a. Is there a scarecrow in this set? There should be. Well, that's not the straw man I'm going after. I'm going after yours. Anyway. <laughs> okay, here it is. This is the end of this conversation. Uh, if Arch School of Thraben top eights a hundred or bigger person tournament in standard, at I'm any, not betting you, Todd. It's not a bet. At any point in the next two years, Ross Merriam can hit me in the face with a whipped cream pie for free. <laughs> no bets, just a fucking. I'm putting it out there on the table. If it ever top eights a hundred person or bigger event. Ross gets to pie me in the face, and there is no downside for him. Do you accept? <laughs> sure. There it is. All right. Two years. I'm coming back on the show in two years. Yeah, with a face full pie. Good. <laughs> you know, good. It'll teach me a fucking lesson. <laughs> I'm making stupid fake bets that don't really benefit me at all. But they're just for fun. Okay. We, we've gotten to, uh, to an hour and 46 minutes, so... I think that's going to wrap, wrap up the magic aspect of the show. But let's do some uh, some overrated, underrated, because that's always fun. Okay. Do you have a list, um, or do I need to... Yeah, it's it's in our Discord. I don't know where we left off. Um, let me... Have we done these? I'm just going to go for it, and we'll figure it out later. I'll make Tannen realize how I've screwed everything up. Um, he's usually the person that handles this, and... There's we're always three weeks behind because, you know, there's just always a million of them. Um, let's do rapid fire. Over, you know, rapid fire. Let's get okay. let's get through them. Uh, so the first one is claw grab machines, the the crane machines, which I know Callie is apparently very good at. Okay, what's the question though? Uh, is it overrated or underrated? Oh, extremely underrated. Uh, claw machines are super fun and good. Uh, I think the dipshits who rig them are some of the most evil people on the planet, and they don't deserve breath. Okay, I don't like them at all, so I'm going to say overrated. Next, the Toy Story aliens. Uh, overrated? I think they're the dumbest thing ever. Um. Also, in the new Buzz Lightyear movie, they're probably going to be evil, which is like not fair. Um, I'm going to go underrated they have such an optimistic outlook on life they think everything is going to get better when they get chosen by the claw but they really have no idea oh uh, so this is a double claw is, is this all of the underrated overrated about claw game from now the, on? The, the this tends to happen where the the <laughs> chat in our discord tends to they, they generate a lot of themes but uh it looks like that one stopped there because the next one is booing your own fans when you're winning <laughs> booing your own fans when you're winning D- does he mean booing your own players Oh, yeah. I think Does he mean like the fans booing their own players when you're winning? Sure. Um, that's weird. I, I mean, it depends on what they do, but I can imagine situations where that's appropriate. See, I think I think you're backwards. I think this is booing your fans when you're winning, like your fellow fans, because they're acting like dickheads. Also underrated. So underrated. Either, either interpretation underrated. Yeah, I say underrated. I, th- I think uh, when your fan base does something dumb... Calling them out is great, and booing people for throwing soda or rushing the field because they're fucking idiots is good. Uh, A lot of people get yelled at. Yeah. Next, uh, Chex Mix. Underrated. I like me some Chex Mix. Uh, I would say evenly rated. I think it's not good, but you really like it, and I know some people who really like it. Um, 
it's just all about those rye chips. If if it's the ones, um, what is the rice Chex mix stuff with chocolate called? Like Muddy Buddies. Muddy Buddies. I think Muddy Buddies are the most underrated snack of all time. Um, Homemade Muddy I mean, Buddies are delicious. Also, they're they're pretty good, but I can't eat a lot of them. Um, <laughs> well, that's just because you don't have the mental fortitude. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's it. Next up, 4-0 with a 60-land deck in Popper. Underrated. <laughs> yeah, definitely I, underrated. I love that people are doing this. They're starting to do it yeah. for Legacy, too. Oh, like, yeah. This kind of shit I am here for all day, every day, and twice on Sunday. Yeah. Uh, by, in general, you know, Watsy, go fuck yourself. Uh, do better, yeah. you know? And when, when, when it gets so bad that this happens, that's your fault. You did this. Yeah. yeah. They're just redressing grievances. Love it. Yeah. Next, ice cream in a dish. Very underrated. I have a beard. Cones are my enemy. Um, so I ate ice cream essentially only in bowls or dishes most of my life because my uh, grandma would always buy like the gallon of, uh, you know, like cookie dough or whatever. And I would just share it with my brothers and sisters. And we didn't really go out for ice cream too often. So whenever I did go out for ice cream, I would always get a waffle cone, like a fresh hot one, because I just never got to eat them. So yeah. I, I'm the opposite. I, I think ice cream cones are, are broken. <laughs> okay. Uh, next, Pop-Tarts. I will say frosted Pop-Tarts overrated. Unfrosted Pop-Tarts massively underrated. Uh, I... Unfrosted blueberry Pop-Tarts on there. Uh, so what you described was like a just a pastry, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think the s'mores pop tarts are the best thing in in the whole world. Ugh. Uh, Ugh. Uh, uh, I eat berries and nuts. <laughs> yes, berries and nuts. That's my diet. I love it. Yeah. Uh, s'more pop tarts are the best, though. The end. End of sentence. Uh, <laughs> Next up is box breaks for magic. I don't know what that means. Pass. <laughs> Next, from our lovely editor Brent Wagner. Flesh and Blood. Ooh, this was posted on September 13th, and we're just getting to it now. That's perfect timing. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> apparently way underrated because a lot of people really like it now. But also overrated because they don't give a shit if people cheat in their game. Yeah, I don't want to get too much into that because, like, you know, I have some pretty extreme biases towards the person in question, so. Yeah, uh, next. Uh, cooking something just so you can use it for leftover cooking dishes. Oh, hugely underrated. Yeah, like I always when I whenever I'm I'm feeling fried like I feel like oh, I'm getting a craving for fried rice. I just like make a rice dish so I have a bunch of leftover rice for the next day, and then I make fried rice. Yeah. So uh, one thing I learned from watching a lot of cooking shows, uh, specifically on how to make fried rice, the best fried rice comes when the kernels are cooked but dry. Uh, and that happens naturally by using rice that you've left in the fridge like overnight uncovered so that the moisture is able to kind of evaporate out of it. Um, and because the the whole point of using a wok or to, to make fried rice is to like kind of individually toast each grain. And uh, it's much harder to do that when they're, um, there's a lot of moisture in them because they stick together. And so day-old You also rice end up is, steaming as opposed to frying so you don't get the texture that you want. Right. Right, right. So just the uh, day-old rice, I, I, you know, I whenever I make fried rice, I cook a big old, like, two cups of rice and put it in a big bowl and just put it in the fridge. Uh, but I usually do that, like, you know, in the early morning or in the afternoon or early, yeah. early afternoon. Yeah, if it's in there for a few morning. hours, it's fine. Right. 
And uh, if you're making a lot of fried rice at home, toasted sesame oil is your best friend. It's so good. Don't use too much, though. It, it can, yeah. If you use too much well, sesame oil, it'll ruin your whole dish. Well, the toasted sesame oil in particular. And, and you're right. Like, it's a little goes a long way. Um, next, non-grape wines. Um, Never had one. Underrated. I like mead quite a bit. I think it's the only non-grape wine. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, I don't, I don't you, really know what that means. I thought wine was just grape alcohol. I mean... Like it's a beverage that ends up being similar to wine, but is made out of fermenting something else. Like I mean, ferment anything and put it in a cup and hand it to me and tell me it won't kill me and I'll probably taste it. Yeah, but but mead in particular is quite good. We used to have a good meadery. Uh, was, I hate mead actually. So it was by my old rated. apartment. They had a really good dessert mead. It was like caramelly. It was delicious. Um, next products made out of blood. So blood sausage, for example very underrated disgusting when when i was in dublin i had blood pudding every day sometimes twice a day it's so good when i was in puerto rico i had blood sausage uh twice i tried it at one place i was like i don't like this and then i had another dish that also came with blood sausage and i tried it and both times i spit it out it just tasted i don't i do not remember what it tasted like but i almost never spit things out and i there are so few foods that I actively dislike that I cannot fathom what makes people like blood sausage. I don't get it. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's the delicious taste. Oh, so you like, <laughs> I mean, if you're a vampire, sure. It just tastes like iron or whatever. Yeah, it's delicious. Dude, I don't. Why don't you put it on your best... metal spoon and eat it so, so <laughs> it's just double up on your metal taste? One, one of the best brunches I ever had in my entire life was sunday in dublin after that pro tour and i went out and found a a place that had on their menu a black pudding waffle and they uh served it with whipped foie gras and cranberry chutney this is before i knew about how horrible they treat the geese to make foie gras also obviously before i was vegetarian but it was so delicious um it was it was incredible. Can I, and uh, just black pudding in general, like a full Irish, when they you know slice it into that disc and then they put it on the flat top and crisp up the sides and. Uh. All right, I got one other small thing on this uh, because I brought it up. So you know how I was talking about like eat it with your metal spoon, so you get the double metal taste. Yeah. Um. So I I watched a movie a couple months back and there was a couple uh, who like were were from Africa. And they were just like learning some some customs when they moved to Great Britain. And like they were just like flabbergasted that they would eat with metal utensils because it just made everything taste like metal. And ever since I've seen that movie, every time I eat, I just taste the metal from my utensils. So I've started to get like pretty aggressive about using bread like a like a bowl or or using uh, my hands to eat instead of a fork and, and a spoon. And I, I've even like started using some of my wooden utensils while I'm cooking instead of the metal utensils for tasting because I just don't want it to taste like metallic. And like, it's crazy how you just get used to something with, without noticing it because it's just what you've been doing most of your life. But then the moment someone just kind of snaps, that snaps you out of yeah. it. You and can, the glass breaks. Yeah. And now like, I, you know, I still eat with a spoon most of the time or a fork or whatever, but like when I don't have to, I love, you know, just like eating random shit with chopsticks when I have them, or I love like using, you know, different types of bread to, to scoop out like, you know, rice and veggies and stuff. Yeah. Next time, next time we're in a big city, we got to go find an Ethiopian restaurant. I've never been to 
any any place that serves any type of Africanized food, and I would love to try it. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, in, in Ethiopian cuisine, you, you often eat with the bread that they serve, or they called injera, mm-hmm. which is somewhat similar to naan. Yeah, um, naan bread is my favorite. I've actually bread, never so. had it myself, but I, I know a little bit about it. So, and it's definitely like very high on my list of cuisines to try is, is Ethiopian. All right, next. Uh, blood bags, and there was an accompanying gif to this that is no longer appearing on my screen, and I don't know what it means. All right, next, I'm just gonna read those, you know. Uh, tech support. <laughs> well, I was wondering if I, it, it sort of seemed like a video game gif, so I thought you might understand the reference. You don't, so we'll just move on. Then tech support. Uh, I would say tech support is underrated. Yeah, underrated. I'm really bad at this shit, so I need support. I need an adult. I think the only bad part about tech support is that um, uh, the waiting for tech support is usually too long. But generally speaking, having somebody know what's going on and tell you how to fix it, unparalleled. It's like watching a YouTube video where the guy just speaks directly to you about how to fix something. It's great. Uh, then breaking the fourth wall in shows, I will say overrated. It's not something I always dislike, but I think it's overdone. Um, I think it depends. Like it, it, okay. I'll just, I'll just cut it short. Uh, it's overrated. It sucks. I hate it. Well, the, the problem has been the rise of the mockumentary style, like where they're, they're literally breaking the fourth wall all the time. Well, what we do in the shadows is like my favorite show, and they do like the the mockumentary thing, like for vampires, and it's like <laughs> the best. It's literally the funniest shit, man. Okay, uh, so last one, the one episode of The Simpsons that included Michael Jackson that is not on Disney Plus. So now I'm going to give you some context. That episode is the season premiere of season three. It is called Stark Raving Dad. Uh, it's a very good episode. What happens is. Um, Bart's red hat gets mixed in with Homer's white work shirts and they all turn pink and he gets really nervous because he doesn't want to wear a pink shirt to work and, you know, be different than everyone else. Uh, and, but he does because he has nothing but pink shirts and he gets committed to an institution as a result of this. Um, and in that institution, he meets another patient who thinks he's Michael Jackson. And this character is, of course, voiced by Michael Jackson, though he was uncredited at the time. Um, and uh, it's, you know, this big lumbering guy who thinks he's Michael Jackson, but it's very gentle. And he, uh, Homer makes friends with him. And at the end, the guy leaves and goes uh, starts talking in his real voice. And it turns out he's a bricklayer from New Jersey whose name is Leon Kompowski. And he goes back to his home. Um but it's a sweet episode. There's a lot of really funny moments in it. It's really good. I presume the only reason it's not on Disney Plus or HBO Max or whatever, whoever has Simpsons, is um, because of uh, you know using the likeness of Michael Jackson. They're, his estate is probably you know nixed that idea for whatever reason, or they wanted more money than uh, than Disney wanted to pay, which is also weird because Disney has unlimited money. Um, so I, I don't know the exact reasons why. I do, I do know it's not there. Uh, and that's unfortunate because it, it is a, a very, very good episode. And so that episode is underrated. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of The Simpsons. Uh, I like The Simpsons a good bit. I'm sorry. I, I have seen a lot of The Simpsons over my lifetime. Not as much as Ross. Uh, I do not recall seeing that episode. Uh, if I did, I was eight. <laughs> I, I have it on DVD if you want to watch it. Yeah. You have a lot of seasons on DVD, right? I have seasons one through 11, except for season six, because I loaned it to Brad. He never gave it back. That, that jerk. son of a bitch. 
That was before he moved, so there's no way that thing survived two moves across the country. Well, so I've got, I've got to go. You'd be surprised when people pack up DVDs or whatever. They usually just put them all in one box. I, yeah. I bet there's a good chance he still has it. I'll, I'll ask him about it. I haven't asked in a while. And if he doesn't, it's like not a big deal, and I'll just go out and buy another one. All right. Mailbag? Uh, even, even though I never, wa- I never ever watch them. Now, we're, we're over two hours. There's one mailbag question. Tana and I will get it no, next week. No, I want it. <laughs> oh, my God. What I, uh, you know it's going to get cut down a little. Yeah. Um, into the mailbag. This comes from Chef Petro, one of our frequent mailbag questioners. Says, modern decks that are difficult to play because of moto constraints, like Heliod, Cat Combo, Thopter Sword, have they been left on the sidelines without innovation because of the difficulty of piloting them online, or is it because of metagame considerations and things that, you know, uh, also would exist in, in Paper Magic? Uh, so if Magic was only played IRL and all those infinite combos and stuff existed uh, more easily, I would say that they would be much more popular. Uh, I know that just at least during the pandemic, decks that do infinite things just don't really see much play on online because they are tedious. Uh, and, and a lot of times the infinite combo, like with Helios specifically, is just infinite life. And if you've played Modern at all, you know that infinite life is rare. Like it's not never going to win the game but it's not going to win the game as much as it should and it's it's specifically not infinite on magic online it's just like you know uh one second for two life x x times and x is how long you do it until your fucking finger gets tired or you quit um and that's just like not good enough but in real life like sometimes it is good enough so i would say that it, it has a pretty significant factor as someone who's played a lot of uh like extended and and old school modern and things like that over the course of my career there were a lot more of those kind of mini infinite combo decks that just don't exist anymore um i would say that it plays a factor you know the in all of them i'll just take the three that that you listed as as my examples but how much of a factor how big that factor is versus you know general metagame considerations the strength of the combo plays into it varies on a case-by-case basis so for example i think thopter sword is just generally not that good um and it wouldn't see that much play in paper you know regardless um i think the heliod combo has been at times good one of the big issues that it has faced in the last six months is that it's gotten a lot easier to remove a heliod from the battlefield true and one of its prime you know uh you know, uh, strengths was the fact that Heliod was so difficult to remove from the battlefield. Prismatic ending has made that much easier. And that really makes the combo a lot less robust and a lot less resilient. So that would be a big problem for that deck moving forward. But as the metagame shifts, you could see it return if there are a specific metagame that is not prepared to deal with Heliod. And then finally, the, um, the cat combo, I actually do think um, has significant potential because it just slots so easily into these like four color Yorian blinky shells. Like Felidar Guardian is a fine card in those decks, and like you can play three or four Iliads and suddenly have this combo kill that you didn't have before. Plays really well with Omnath too. Like you can do it on turn five with no other um, with no other help. So th- that's the one that I think has the most potential and is being the most held back by you know the the um logistical difficulties of playing it online so it just sort of depends on a case-by-case basis to me so here i'll reiterate on that a little so i think if the combo is infinite um and it takes you infinity time to complete 
then it's bad for online play. And I think that specifically uh, resol- revolves around Heliod and like Spike Feeder or one other creature that gains life. Uh, but if it's infinite damage and you just have to deal it, do it 20 times, that's not as much of a barrier as continuing the game after putting through your infinite thing. And it's not actually infinite. Like I played a PTQ once where my opponent gained... 200 life with Kitchen Finks, Malira, and the 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 one one that you sack stuff with, right? Um, whatever you know, the old combo, right? Where you gain infinite life and birthing pod. Anyway, they gain yeah. they gain infinite, infinite life and birthing pod, uh, but they only did it. They only gained 200 life, and then I untapped, killed their Viscerseer, and then like eventually killed the rest of their creatures, and then I just killed them over the course of like. 10 turns with Tarmogoyves and Cryptic Commands and things like that. Yeah, 200 life is not hard to deal at all. Right, but it is hard to gain a thousand life and then keep playing. And that is just yeah. and that's just not what you have to do in real life. So it just creates an artificial barrier. But if it's like like if Splinter Twin got unbanned in modern, I think Splinter Twin would be a huge part of the metagame. And I think that the reason why cat combo, Sahili and Feldar Guardian uh, isn't really a thing is because that combo a doesn't interact at instant speed with your opponent doesn't they they can see it coming from like a mile away and and b the individual pieces uh are like not good enough on their own like feldar guardian and sahili when they were in standard you know copying something or blinking something and gaining like a little minuscule incremental value was like pretty good but in modern that shit they're just like not magic cards as opposed to splinter twin and deceiver exarch that are excellent cards by themselves well splinter twin or sorry deceiver exarch's insane by itself tapping your opponent's land on three when you're on the play just like stalls them out like you've gotten iced in this format right like pretty pretty often Every time you get ice, don't you just want to throw up a little? Yeah, I wouldn't call that insane, but it's it's fine. It's like about on the level of Felder Guardian, in my opinion. Well, the di- Felder Guardian often just draws a card when it enters the battlefield. Well, the big difference is you just get to dictate the dictate the pace of the game, and you get to interact when you want to interact. And with like your counter spells and stuff, you get to hold those up. And if your opponent doesn't do anything, you still get to use your mana by casting Exarc or yeah. your your pestle. So they slot into different decks because of context. And that's the show. We're done. Yeah. We, we, we actually are done. I was trying to wrap this up. We're, we're over two hours. So I'm going to uh, quickly thank our sponsor, since I would be remiss if we did not do that. That is Barrister and Man. Man spelled with two N's. They sell a wide range of grooming products from soaps to shaving supplies. Uh, and, you know, this is really well-made stuff, um, you know, uh, and really high-quality stuff. So if, if you haven't used things like that, um before it really has been a revelation for both tannin and me who are used to using you know like cheap soap we buy at a grocery store uh the stuff is is really good the always coming out with you know new scents and new products and things so check out their website and if you're interested picking up things for the holidays it would be a great time to do that and be sure to use the uh code um mtg rants at checkout to get 15 percent off of your purchase most people only get you 10 percent. we got you all 15 because we're great uh, and so we appreciate any support y'all throw to them. Uh, Todd, uh, thanks for filling in for Tannen while he is commentating the uh, Flesh and Blood calling. And uh, if people want to maybe see some more rants from you, where can they find you? Nowhere. <laughs> I don't exist. <laughs> I'm a figment of your imagination. Uh, I don't stream as much as I used to, so I wouldn't worry about about doing Twitch for right now. But I do write articles for Star City Games uh, basically every week. They come out on Thursdays. 
Um, I read all about um, new cards, is it stuff, card draw, removal spells, modern. You know, I, I have like a very specific niche in all the formats that I play, and it's usually blue, red, X. And uh, so if that's the type of shit you're interested in, if you want to learn how to play with expressive iteration, come read my articles on starcitygames.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm now TandyMTG. I used to be strong, sad. Now I'm Tandy, MTG, Tandy. It's a portmanteau. <laughs> you can, of course, find me at, at Ross Hunnids uh, on Twitter. That's you know, it's extremely easy to change your name, right? Yeah, and I just haven't done it. Okay, I'll do it soon. <laughs> I'm thinking about changing it. I don't have an idea of what to change it to. As soon as I get a good idea with that, I'll do it. Um, don't try to brainstorm ideas for me right now, Todd. Yeah, I'll do it later. I'm trying to wrap the yes, show. Yes, But for now, you can find me on Twitter at, at Ross Hunnids. That's the best place to keep abreast of all of my magic comings and goings. It's also a good place to ask me questions, as I do try to get back to people as often as possible. Then there's my written content for Star City Games. My articles go up on Tuesdays. Uh, this week's article, as I mentioned earlier in the show, is all about Chandra dressed to kill. Um, and then there is Versus Live, the web show I co-host twice a week with Corey Baumeister. We are on the Star City Games Twitch channel from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, playing whatever formats are relevant for competitive magic. We have a really good time while doing it. And we do take questions live from the audience. So if you can catch us live, you can get your question answered there as well. If you can't watch live, then you can find the VODs on the Star City Games YouTube channel. They tend to go up a day later. So by the by 5 p.m., by the end of business uh, the next day. So that'll be Wednesday and Friday. And then my Twitch stream has been inactive for a while as well, but I promise it's coming back soon. If you want to throw me a follow there so you get notified when I come back, I would appreciate that as well. I am Ross underscore Miriam, so just my full name there, and that's M-E-R-R-I-A-M on Twitch. Once again, Todd, thanks for being here. No um, appreciated the rants, appreciated the, uh, you know, Tannen likes to agree with me a lot, so it's actually kind of a nice change of pace to have somebody that just disagreed with me all the time i enjoyed it i mean uh i thought you just got that all the time in real life that's kind of like your whole mo yeah it happens more often in real life but during the podcast tannin, <laughs> tannin tends to be pretty agreeable look all i like to do is simulate real world scenarios so <laughs> well you did a good job today um and so that's going to be all for us uh, next week, Tannen and I will be back with our typical set review show where we reveal our top eight cards from Innistrad Crimson Vow along with our pick for most overrated and underrated card from the set. So you're going to want to tune in for that. We will try to get that out relatively quickly. I know we were a little bit late getting the show out this week. That had it was in large part due to me not understanding how tight Tannen's schedule was going to be and a little bit of necessary recovery time from uh, the long weekend at SCG Con. Yeah, so yeah. I appreciate your patience in getting this episode out. Hopefully Brent can get it turned around relatively quickly, but you know, no rush, Brent. We appreciate everything you do. Uh, and thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>